Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you think of a, a chicken, when you kill a chicken, that's an egg layer. And we didn't kill a lot of the egg, later, egg layers, but wild animals would kill them. You'd get the, the egg that was going to come out, and then you'd get a... I don't know. They have this tube in it. You're the doc. Um, and it, that's where the eggs grow. Well, the right. chickens shut down, you know, production of eggs. They don't have to spit out the, the last three that were in the barrel. They just, you know, go away. Their body breaks them down. You know, I'm going, wow, that's kind of weird. And I guess in every type of female on this earth, there's a way of reabsorbing that egg. I hadn't thought about that with chickens. Mm. Um, we're getting close to taking a break here, but remind me when we come back from break, I have a question here from uh, Frank in the, the text window, so we're going to address that, and I'll take a look and see if we have anything in the uh, chat room. Uh, if anybody has any questions for Steve, it's one 800 932-1980. Please call in. We'd love to have uh, your opinions on anything you've heard about. Any questions, anything at all, be great. And uh, let's see what else I was going to say here. Um, When we come back, uh, I'd like to know a little bit about how long you did all this. I'm sure everybody's interested in how successful it was and when you quit, why you quit, all that kind of stuff. So we are just about for our uh, commercial break, so hang with me, Steve, and we will be right back after commercial. about what I call a box list, and these people are my friends, but more important than that, they're people that I trust and respect, I know they'll take good care of you like they always have me. First is Steve O'Brien of Quality Computers, and whatever your computer needs, from home to office, IT, intercoms, PA systems, uh, monitoring, he'll take care of you. 830-998. 4381, he's in the Fredericksburg, Giuseppe County area, but many things he can do online where you don't even have to take the computer to him, and he works 
about where your next meal will come from if the power is out for an extended period of time, I'd like to suggest Numana Foods, a family-owned business with a passion for food quality and taste, as well as long-term storage reliability. Numana.com. Check them out for your family's health and security. Food so good tasting and good for you, it can be eaten every day. Standard buckets are GMO-free, contain no aspartame, high fructose corn syrup, autolyzed yeast extract, chemical preservatives, or soy. You can be confident your Numana meals will be there for you and your family when you need them during an emergency. Numana.com, a nutritionally healthy way to prepare for any disaster. That's Numana.com. N-U-M-A-N-N-A.com. I would like to tell you about the only truly natural dog and cat food I have found anywhere. Most all companies add a synthetic vitamin mineral pack to their dry or kibble food. Nature's logic is different. With all natural ingredients and nothing man-made added, their owner, Scott Freeman, worked for another pet food company but decided he wanted to do things right. So he started Nature's Logic. You can check them out at natureslogic.com. You will find online and local stores where you can find their products. I spent a lot of time trying to find an all-natural pet food, and Nature's Logic was the only one out there. Give your pets the best and check out naturelogic.com. Your pets will be glad you did. They also have many other natural pet products to try. Dr. Krupa's Natural Health Hour. I am your host, Dr. Krupa, and we are broadcasting on American Voice Radio Network. Uh, you can go there and uh, find a little bar where you can donate if you'd like to help support. Tell Frank I sent you. If you want to send to me, I prefer the big, heavy, solid gold bars, but, you know, that's your call. Uh, we are lucky we have my good friend and a host of his own radio show, Steve O'Brien, on the air with us, and he's done a lot of things off-grid, a wealth of information, and uh, we're in the middle of dealing with that. Steve, are you back with us? I sure am. One of the questions I have here for you is, have you ever used the mill attachment for the Champion Juicer? Not the Champion Juicer, but I've used the one for... um uh, a, a different, uh, God, what is it called, blender thing, you know. But, yeah, I've used the attachments previously. My my biggest thing with those uh, those mills is I can never get it the way that I liked it, right? They, if you read through all mill documentation, it comes down to 
you don't want to heat it up. You don't want to grind it. You want to smush it. And so there's a thing called a roller mill that's supposed to be the ultimate way to go. And I've used a, a grinder, right? And we can take a, a variety of blenders and put attachments on them. Um, and, but I, I've never used a champion. But then that's still a grinder. It's either using metal or stones, and I surely did not want a stone mill because, yeah, whenever you're using those things, now you're eating stone, too. And I don't know if that stone is mineral lace, Doc. Is that good for you? Well, uh, according to the people at Lee Engineering, uh, and he started with the stone. I don't know the type of stone, but they say it will last forever, so it mm. must not be wearing off and going into your grain too much, and it must be of a nature that if it does get in there, it's, it's something natural and good for you. Have you had now, a chance to look at uh, the Lee Mill? that He designed it in the 1920s, like 29, but they have remanufactured it for the modern day, and they have uh, a lot of organic grains and all that. Have you had a chance to look at any of that? No, I well, yes, I have. Uh, I looked at the shiny colors. I looked at the price tag, and I'm kind of well. I haven't done the specs on it yet, and checked out the engineering. And well, as far as that goes, the price is right about in alignment with what um, what I'd expect to pay for a really good the country living mill. That one will run you somewhere between $400 all the way up to 1200 if you want to get the motor attachment. Um, the, uh, what's it called, the New Life, or the, my favorite high-speed impact one. And I, somehow I, oh, yeah, here it is, the Neutro Mill. That was my favorite, but then that's a high-speed one where they spun a piece of grain so fast that it goes and smashes itself against steel and turns itself into... Um, it's a flower, and then it had a catch basin, and then you'd you know harvest it. But it had some delivery problems, so you'd have to sit there and you'd pour the the grains in the top of the mill. And I had a chopstick that I'd use, and I'd swirl it around to make sure it all gravity fed into the well spinny chamber. So, you know, the mills are great, and I could see where you can use a, a roller mill. Uh, I'm sorry, I you could use stone or rock um, to mill this stuff is if you're doing a roller mill. And a roller mill doesn't use friction. The problem with the friction-based uh, mills using stone is they use another thing of stone to cause the friction, and then you have lots. So uh, I guess that would work, and I could say a stone mill would sound good. But I'm going to wait. I'll, I'll wait till you can get those guys on. I'll, maybe I'll take a look at that stuff later on in the week. But I'm nowhere well, yeah. near ready. Uh, I was going to say, uh, they said they're moving the, the grain. I watched a few videos on them, how they do it. And they move the grain with a hot air current across the stone. So there's no two stones together, like you said. And uh, mm. they've been at it a long time. They're using all organic uh, grains. They grow a lot of it up there at Palmyra, Wisconsin, at the Standard Process Organic Farm. So I got a feeling it's going to be interesting if we can get them on the show next week. And then mm. maybe uh, we get them on. You can call in if you have any questions. 
because uh, you know a lot about the bills already, so it'll mean more to you. I, I know very little, and I haven't dealt with it that much because it's not an everyday thing that most homes have. So, well, tell us how long so, did so you it, it was, Yeah. Well, let me. Okay, let me tell you that. For but first, before let me go this direction. That was me coming out of California, and that was where I was living in San Francisco, and I was spending, uh, I don't know, well, forty, thirty dollars for a meal every day. You know, three times a day, living in the city. And then I realized I woke up and I said, "This is not the way man should actually be." And I tried to figure out how that was going to work out. So my process of learning how men could theoretically feed themselves, because I know this world is not in a good place. And I just need to, I think it's really good for people to have these kind of skills. And they, they bring a lot to the table in the end. Well, it ended up falling apart, Doc. Man, sometimes it does, but it's not over yet. And, well, the person I was uh, homesteading with, uh, me and her, she, we didn't get along anymore, and she, she did one of those things that um, people like to do, and they, they say, well, can you put me back in the machine? I want to go in back to the matrix. And they turn you into Ronald Reagan or whatever. Nah, she just took off saying, you know what, the world's going to be the world, and screw it. You know, I'm, I'm going back, and I'm going to have my cheeseburger, and I'm going to do this. And I said, well, I'm not done. I ended up uh, moving in Gillespie County twice. And my last uh, bit of the endeavor, I had about uh, 10, 10 chickens with me, about the same amount of rabbits. And I was on a mountaintop, and there was a one-mile hike to a, a lake that I could go fishing in. And I wasn't paying rent. It was just one of those things of, hey, I see what you've done. You know, you can use my garden, start it up, grow stuff, be productive. You know, the world's in a real bad place. And I worked there, and I worked on that piece of property, and I put up my solar panels. And, and that lasted for several months until the batteries uh, well, they wore down, and it took money to get up and down this hill. And I rode my bicycle with a trailer, hauling chickens and chicken feed and rabbits and everything back and forth, because after several months, uh, the, the predators were starting to come in, and they'd actually go after my chicken coop in the middle of the night, and I'd hear chickens screaming, and by the time I got out there, they'd be already eaten part of my chicken through the fencing, and it was a, just a sad place. And so, yeah, so that lasted. The, the whole endeavor probably lasted about about four years, and I learned an awful lot. I, I I learned that in the wintertime that you can live in below zero or below freezing temperatures if you have a whole puddle of kittens in the, uh, in the sleeping bag. You know, there's a lot of ways you can live and be comfortable. I know it was really cold, but, um, but man, it was exciting. I know where my measurements are, what I can handle, what I can do. And that's made me a better person, and I hopefully will be going back there soon to that type of living, I should say. Well, I was going to say, if, you know, the power goes out, anything happens, 
you're pretty well ready to fall right back into it. You might have a little rust on uh, a few things, but it, it sounds like you learned enough that you could reestablish pretty quick. Now, did you have a lot of goat milk? And uh, like, I love goat milk. It's one of my I favorites. I had too much goat milk. Way too much goat milk. And it was like when you you have different goats would would feed you different amounts of milk. Some will get a pint, and then some you'll get a quart. Some will get two quarts, and you're like, whoa, okay. So hold on, explain to me this. Why did we get eight? Because I don't understand. We don't need eight quarts of milk, right? And all you're, we're managing the goats, and the goats are eating the field, and we're augmenting their their field stuff with some alfalfa sometimes and, you know, different little things. But, but you don't need a, um, a quarter or two of milk is probably good for a lot of conditions, two people or maybe even four people. I don't think you need that much milk. Maybe it's good well, for you. Maybe You can freeze it. Uh, you can freeze it yeah. and frost it like fresh we, milk. You never know you ever froze it. You know, I never got into that. I know we tried it once, and that, that just wasn't, you're still, I could fill a freezer in a month or two, Doc. You know, it's like, okay, now what? Now we've frozen a freezer full of, of milk, and I have a $800 freezer full of milk. How much is that worth? You know, That's when you start selling gold milk to people like me that love to drink it. Oh, I totally agree if I knew you existed and wanted it. And we did have people that come by and uh, want to get our milk from us. But back then we were trying to figure out what community was and not trying to deal with commerce within this kind of thing. And there was a sharing type thing. So we said, here, I'll just give you the milk. You take it, man. You want to give me something, go for it. You know, because there's, I mean, when we deal with commerce, commerce is great. But friends are important, too, and the people that are around you are probably more important than anything else. Well, now, knowing you and knowing your love for communication, when you were living off-grid like this, did you have radio, Internet, television? What did you have? Well, I, I had a local radio station I could listen to, and that was probably one of the Probably one of the things that locked me into Fredericksburg was being connected to the Internet and hearing all these wonderful channels. I, I grew, well, I woke up on a station called WTPRN. It was up there on Galaxy 19, like AVRN, and it died. And it was like, oh, where did it go? Get out of California. There's nothing else. Well, once I got to, to uh, Fredericksburg, I found out that, there were other channels out on Galaxy 19, including ABRN, and the content was similar and some of it better. And it's like going, wow, okay. And then it was being fed to me via an FM, so that was nice, and I could take that. I'd still go to the coffee shop or one of the other places and download stuff, but I had no Internet. I had no telephone. That wasn't needed. You know, that wasn't part of my world. And ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about somebody in the high-tech field today who still has a flip-top phone, 
So a little bit of that stuff is in his blood, and uh, it's not ever going to change. So that's kind of neat. So t tell me, Steve, uh, looking back on that four-year stint, what do you miss the most, and what are you glad you're not doing? Hmm. Okay. I don't know. I can't really give you a glad I'm not doing a lot of stuff. Okay. I guess what I'm glad I'm not doing is goats don't really like trauma too much. And in the middle of a huge storm when you have your goats huddled up into in their barn and one of them dies and it's been storming for, for a week or longer and it dies and you go, well, how am I going to deal with, you know, burying this goat? Well, I've had this happen a couple times. And, well, one time it was really nice. Uh, we got a break in the storm, and I got enough time to go out there and in my rain gear and dig a hole in the, in the ground and bury the goat. And, well, first we had to do an autopsy on the goat to find out why it died and see if we could find any kind of clues because we didn't want, uh, what's the goat infected? Are we going to have to treat our goats? And it was the middle of a storm. I didn't really like that. I'm really not that big into um, into blood and guts, and you know, I can skin and all that, doc. I tell you that. But then I don't want to spend a lot of time researching um, the conditions and looking through doing an autopsy. That was the first. I, I've never done anything like that. Wasn't my idea. Um, but I didn't like that. Didn't like it at all. But now I can do it. I can look for foreign things and say, I've seen enough insides of you guys know what's right. Uh, that's wrong. And then we found out that it was a stress-related illness that the goats get when they're in high stress like those big storms. And But it's sad. The death, dealing with all these animals dying, um, that was hard. Being a Californian, we didn't see a lot of death. So I, I never dealt with um, wasting a whole bunch of time to save a, a little chick or, you know, having a rabbit die and going, man, all these other things. And it, But it was good. You know, I, I learned about, well, <laughs> I learned how to eat animals. I learned how to kill animals, how to put them out of their misery, God, put them out of their life um, for my life. And the first time you did it, it was like, oh, my God, I, I, I just killed this chicken, and it doesn't taste good because you killed it wrong, and your mind's still trying to wrap itself around it because, well, I didn't grow up hunting, right, and processing animals. I grew up going to Wendy's, going to the supermarket, and that it brought me more natural, and that I appreciate. I miss a lot of that time. Um, but I don't miss, you know, there ain't much that I don't miss about that. I miss not being there now, Doc. That's about it. That's kind of what I expected to hear from you because everybody that I know that's ever done that kind of thing uh, loves it. Our, our good friend, uh, John Jarnicki once told me that of all the things he's done in his life, working the farm, ranching, all that was the most enjoyable thing he ever did, even though it was hard work. Yeah. I have yeah, a question I... here for you. Uh, okay. They want to know, did you ever butcher any of the goats and, you know, have goat meat? I did. 
I made a uh, a master plan of how I was going to do that. Right, I'm sitting there upgrading my my processing skills, and I'm like, I'm here. This California boy can do uh, chicken. You know, we can do a lot of chickens. We can do a chicken processing day. We can do rabbits. I can do rabbits really quick. I'm like getting coffee, and then I had well, I had new babies, and so we raised those guys up, and. Uh, we're like, okay, now it's time, right? Got to harvest them. And so we were, we were planning on doing this, and I thought about it in my head, and I reassured myself that I could do it. And I'm like, okay, so what are you going to do it with? I'm all, yeah, box cutter. Okay, box cutter. Box cutter it is. And I wanted it to be quick and not painful for, for the little goat butt. And... Uh, so I went over to it, you know, and she was happy right by a tree in the middle of summer, and it was a nice shade tree, and I get out my box cutter, and I run it across, you know, the goat's neck, and nothing happens because a box cutter is not strong enough. And so here I am with the box cutter trying to kill my first goat to process it, and it starts freaking out. What are you doing? That tickles. And man, man. Okay, totally botched that one. Had to regroup and go back to an actual knife and um, use that. But it was very hard because every time you upgrade to, to the different process, we ended up, uh, I don't know, it's different as you kill my, It is killing. It's really killing. They were alive. They were having fun. But the reason they were born was for goat meat. And so we... Well, we cut off the head, or cut the head, and I held the goat as it bled through the neck. And, um, yeah, then we went ahead and gutted it and ate. And, yeah, had goat meat. I don't think I, no, that was the last time we did eat goat. That was really dramatic, really painful to me. Yeah, but, that would be to me, too. Uh, it's, it's one thing to order a nice meal at a restaurant where somebody else did what you just did, talked about. But having to do that yourself when you raised it, uh, I guess you adjust to that after a while uh, because many ranchers would be starting to that if they didn't. Well, I In the beginning, I, I, I would feel just like you described. That would be very difficult for me. Since then, since that time, I've actually um, done a lot more hunting and processed a lot more animals. But it was just very hard for the first time, and I had a lack of knowing. I was ignorant about how to do it right, and I think that the uh, goat suffered a little bit, and that doesn't make me feel good. Yeah, well, and I, I love that, that you described it that way because it shows the passion and the heart. Uh, and the compassion that you had for the animal, even though it was raised for that purpose. Uh, you mentioned about when you first started doing chickens, you did it the wrong way, and then you figured out the right way. What What did you mean? What was the wrong way that gave it a bad taste, and how did you figure that out? When, when you slaughter chickens, um, you really want to catch them without getting excited. You don't want the adrenaline to just go crazy and nuts. And I didn't get that. And so I, I responded to a Craigslist posting in California, and they said they had, they had 10 roosters, 
for anybody to come and get them. So we went over to, to their place and got ourselves 10 roosters and started going to YouTube trying to study how to kill chickens. And they showed us all these different methods of, you know, cut off their head and do this, do that. And I'm like, man, it's easier than that. And so I walked into the coop, and I grabbed the chicken by the head, and I swung it around the coop, and it snapped its neck. But, you know, before that, it went into, like, hyper mode. What are you doing? You're chasing me. Oh, my God. The adrenaline goes up, and that kills the taste. They, some people say that you can put them in the refrigerator and bring that back down. You know, it's kind of like cold aging a, um, cold aging a, a deer to try to get the adrenaline from the, the death of the deer out. I'm not sure. I've never had any success with that. But I did find that the best way to dispatch a chicken was to do it really without it being aware of anything was wrong. And then that way it, ta it tasted better. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, like I said, it sounds like you learned a lot. And I love the fact that you had your heart in this and the compassion and the caring. I mean, that that's pretty special. Um, just I'm I'm in awe. You and I have talked a lot, and I learned a whole much more about some of the stuff you've done today. So I'm I'm sure our audience has picked up on a lot of that, and it's been very good. We'll have to bring you back and go into more because we just scratched the surface on what you did in the four years, and I'm sure that. Uh, it would be fun to have you come back on if you like, and we'll go over more stuff, a little bit more on uh, the, the difference of what what equipment's available, the 12 volt power, uh, you know what what you did in the way of taking the growing the crops. We didn't we just barely touched on your crops at all today. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of stuff, man. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Well, I'm impressed. You did. You learned a lot. Uh, the fact that you did your own uh, um, uh, autopsy and figured out that it was stress-related on a goat, that's amazing. Um, I have a feeling that if we lose power, you won't, you won't stress at all. You'll know exactly what to do. So anyway, we're power. getting close to that time. We're at the end of the night. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on, Steve. I can't tell you how much it means that have you come on and tell everybody the story. Very interesting, very informative. And uh, if you'd like to, I'd love to have you come back on. Does that sound good? Yeah, anytime, man. I'm here for you. I sure appreciate it. Again, everybody, it's Steve O'Brien, and you can listen to him at 8 to 10 in the morning on Sundays on republicbroadcasting.org. And uh, he has a great show there, and he's been doing this a long time. And as you heard, he's got a lot of stuff on living off the grid and doing things natural and nutritional and healthy. So we'll, we'll get him back and we'll go into crops and emergency food. We just barely scratched into all that. And as always, it is a pleasure to be here. I, an honor that you take some time out of your week to listen to my show. And as the song says in the very beginning, I, I hope whatever condition your condition is in, that we're able to make it a little better. Uh, we want the show to be informative and help you make better decisions during your life this week. And uh, God willing, we'll see you back here next week. As always, may God bless you with health and happiness. And please be very, very quick to listen. 
and slow to speak. And uh, thank you so much. Thanks to our producer and the owner of the station, Frank, and everybody in the chat room. And again, a, a special thank you to my very good friend, Steve O'Brien, for coming on and sharing tonight with us. Good night, everybody, and have a great evening. Seems the love I've known has always been the most destructive kind. Guess that's why now I feel so old before my time. Yesterday, when I was young, the taste of life was sweet as rain upon my tongue. I teased at life as if it were a foolish game. The way the evening breeze may tease a candle flame. The thousand dreams I dreamed, the splendid things I planned, I always built to last on weakened, shifting sand. I live by night and shun the naked light of day. And only now I see how the years ran away. Yesterday. The political, religious, and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold 
value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. AVR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Welcome to America Betrayed. That was the sound of a Harley for you people that don't know what a Harley sounds like. That was the sound that I heard first time back in 1957 when I met a gentleman who would later become my friend for over 50 years. A great person, a very good friend. As you go through life, you'll find out that you have very few really good friends. 
may think like your friends, but you'll find out they never were. But this man was. He never, never faltered once. At 80 years old, he traveled all the way across the country to see me one time, made by himself. He was always there when I needed him. I met him in 57. I got my first motorcycle. It was a Panhead, Harley Panhead. I was invited to uh, join his uh, little motorcycle club. Went there. It was called the President's. We had a nice little clubhouse, and it was a lot of fun. We went out riding at night. Uh, we had a little saying that if you don't like our riding, stay off the sidewalks. But we were just bikers who wanted to have fun, and that's what Ralph was. So after 50 years of hearing his motorcycle alongside me, his motorcycle is now in heaven. <clears throat> Excuse me. On his way to Sturgis, coming around a turn, very gentle turn from what I've seen of the pictures, went off the road, crashed, and perished. The memorial was put up there by his good friend, Pete Page. Pete Page was also in our club. Another good friend. But I just wanted to dedicate this show to Papa Ralph. I have been away from the show for a number of years, primarily due to health reasons. I started the show in 2008, uh, tried to warn people about Obama back in 2008 with the help of Phil, Phil Berg. Nobody would listen. I had many people on the show that told the truth. My friend uh, Ted Gunderson used to be head of the FBI office in Los Angeles. He told the truth, and they killed him for it. Sonny Bono told the truth. or was trying to tell the truth. They killed him for it. Uh, in my later shows, I'll be getting into who killed him, why they killed him, and so on. These are great people. I'll give you a little bit of my background. I worked in Congress as a congressional liaison for a number of years. I became good friends with Sonny Bono. Uh, James Traficant, uh, Congressman Ed Royce, and a few others uh, uh, on Capitol Hill. And in, when I first went there in 95, I still, like a lot of people, thought it was our government and that these were good people that really cared about this country. Well, I found out very quickly that they weren't. I was a Democrat many years ago. My parents were Democrats because they were for the working class person. But being in D.C., I found out the Democrats are no longer Democrats, they're communists. I want to read you something here, I think, that will really kind of sum it up of what's happened to our country. And it's very, very sad, but unless we do something, this is really what's happened and is going to happen, and there's nothing you can do about it. Time is like a river. You cannot touch the water twice because the flow that has passed will never pass again. America will not come back. The American dream ended on November 6, 2012 in Ohio. The second term of Barack Obama has been the final nail in the coffin for the legacy of the white Christian males who discovered, explored, pioneered, 
settled and developed the greatest republic in the history of mankind. A coalition of blacks, Latinos, feminists, government workers, union members, environmental extremists, the media, Hollywood, uninformed young people, the forever needy, the chronically unemployed, illegal aliens, and other fellow travelers at IVNID, Northern Rockwell's America. You will never again outvote these people. It will take individual acts of defiance and massive displays of civil, civil disobedience to get back the rights we have allowed them to take away. It will take zealots, not moderates, and shy, not reach across the aisle rhinos to right this ship and restore our beloved country to its former status. People like me are completely politically irrelevant, and I will probably never again be able to legally comment or concern myself with the aforementioned coalition, which is surrender our culture, our heritage, and our traditions without a shot being fired. The Cocker Spaniel is off the front porch. The pit bull is in the backyard. The American Constitution has been replaced with Saul Alinsky's rule for radicals and the likes of Chicago shyster David Oxrod, along with international associates George Soros, has been pulling the strings in the United States of America. The curtain will come down, but the damage has been done. The story has been told. Those who come after us will once again have to risk their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to bring back the republic that this generation has timidly frittered away due to white guilt and political correctness. Hope it's all wrong, but that's what it looks like to me. I hope that people one day will say enough, but from what I've seen, I, I don't see it happening. I think that it's just gone on too long. Now, I got involved 25 a little over 25 years ago with illegal immigration. Because at that time, I couldn't figure out why illegal aliens could come into this country and be treated like royalty. The woman coming into the country, having a baby, and the baby becoming a U.S. citizen and getting better benefits that our veterans and my parents couldn't get. There's something wrong with that picture. That's like rewarding a bank robber. Hey, you just robbed the bank. Here's your prize. Illegal Cubans. Once they're processed, after they set foot on the U.S. soil, which could be Mona Island, which is a part of Puerto Rico, they're in the U.S., they receive $10,000 in cash, free medical, and a low-interest business loan. What's wrong with this picture? These are all the people that have brought into the country to destroy this country. Our Achilles heel are the blacks and Mexico. Now, the blacks at one time were coming up in the world. You watch videos or film of the blacks during, uh, uh, in Harlem in the 30s and 40s. They were gra- dressed very nice. They had nice nightclubs. But what happened? Well, Lyndon Johnson, hey, here's some free money. Oh, wait a minute. There's, there's a stipulation, though. Uh, you can't have a man in the house. Well, that broke down the black family, and we're seeing the end result of that. We're seeing out that they're thugs. Now, my friend, good friend Jesse Peterson, has an organization in California called Bond, Building a New Destiny for Black Youth, trying to rebuild the the black family. But I think he's a little too late for that because the Democrats have them controlled. 
They think that they're the saviors. That's why they keep voting Democrats. They're not the saviors. These are bad, bad, bad people. And the Republicans, the one good thing Donald Trump has done is he's exposed all these charlatans in the Republican Party, these rhinos. They're not, they don't belong there. Now the the Bushes are saying, well, we're going to support Hillary Clinton. Of course they're going to support Hillary Clinton. It's called the Bush-Clinton crime families. Probably one of the biggest drug cartels in the world. Sonny Bono was going to expose him when he got back to Washington, D.C. Now, why do you think he was killed? Look what's happening to these people now that are exposing uh, this piece of crap Hillary. Falling by the wayside. They're killing more people than the Kennedys did. But yet people keep going on. Well, now, now who, are, who, are these, who are these people that are voting for Hillary and, and uh, this other jerk uh, uh, that was running against her, a communist? Hey, yeah, let's steal from the rich people and give to the poor people. Well, he was bought off by Hillary, of course. It was a setup. How much money he got, who knows. But he goes right out and buys a $600,000 house, his third house. This is what communists do. Communism is a criminal enterprise posing as a savior for the poor. But yet these young kids, that don't, they don't realize what country we had. I do. I'm, a, I'm in the older generation. I know what we've already lost. These young kids don't. They're dumbed down. They are stupid. A friend of mine in San Diego calls me all the time. He says, hey, John, am I still sane? I can't get anybody to listen. Their eyes glaze over. They're stupid. I thought I said I, I thought that was just where I lived. That is not. I mean, and that's on purpose. Dumb them all down so they don't know what the hell they're doing. It's like the boiling frog syndrome. The boiling frog syndrome for you that don't know is you take a pot of water, put a frog in it. After you've heated it up, the frog is going to jump out. Put the same pot. Don't heat it up. Put the frog in, the frog will stand there, then gradually heat it up little by little. That's the boiling frog. Before you know it, he's boiled. That's what's happened over the years. Nikita Khrushchev pounded on the desk at the UN. I will, we will bury you. Well, they've buried us. Well, look what they did to Venezuela. The communists, Cuba, took over Venezuela. They had the third highest oil reserve in the world. Now they're eating out of garbage cans, killing animals. They have to go across the border, sneak into Colombia to, to get food. Now, if you go to the hospital, you have to take your own medicine, your own bandages, everything. That's what they want to do here. They want to have you completely subservient. They are after, hey, let's, we, we need to take the guns. If we take the guns away from them, uh, then that then will be so easy to take over. But they even have a, uh, they have a, a alternate plan, which... We just finished shooting a film. A friend of mine and myself uh, went down to Mexico. We filmed a uh, film called uh, Water the New Gold. We filmed in Mexico and California. We found out that uh, the San Joaquin Valley is uh, sinking two feet a year. Uh, We went down into uh, Mexico uh, to find out what the situation was there because they wanted to build a desalinization plant uh, to uh, pipe water up to uh, California and also to the Salton Sea in, in, um, in California. The Mexican government bent over backwards for us, wanted to help us. They even had the Mexican military down in the Sonoran Desert. 
uh, protecting us from the drug smugglers. But we get back to San Diego, my friend gets a phone call. Now, my friend happens to be pretty high up in the Mexican government, but he gets a phone call, and uh, he turns pale. I go, what's wrong? Uh, he goes, um, I can't talk about it. Next day, he drives me to the airport to come back home, and he said, my people in Mexico got a phone call that if we continued, it would be the end of us. You know, investigation into the water, the water crisis. The water crisis has been done by the government because the government wants full control of all the resources. Hey, if we can't take the guns away from them, what are they going to do without water or food? We control it all. People say, oh, man, we've got all these guns in here. <laughs> what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with a tank out in front of your house? Wake up, people. You gotta, you, you, the only way to take, get this government back is by force. It's not going to be done by voting. The voting is rigged like crazy. Illegal aliens have been voting in our elections for years after years. I've sent boxes. I've taken boxes to Congress of known illegals voting years ago, back in 95, 96. I took them to the uh, Republican Party. They did nothing with it. That's why I always talk about Sonny Bono and, and Jim Traficant from Ohio. Those are two guys that were trying to do something, and they're dead. Congress is a criminal enterprise. Hillary is a criminal. She not, should not even be put in prison. She should be hung, period. It's a Bush-Clinton crime family. They vacationed together. They've controlled the White House for the last 44 years. I hope some of you listen to this and try to do something. I mean, like I said, I, I don't see the only way anything good can happen is if God steps in right now because it is really dire. If, leg, if Trump is legitimate, if he is legitimate, he's the only one we can vote for because what he's saying, he's not part of the system. I mean, he has to be part of the system. I don't like some of his associates that he's associating with. But, hey, he's the only hope we have. If he is a shill, if he's a fraud, then we're done for. We're toast. Now, at break time, I'm going to be playing a couple of Papa Ralph's favorite songs. And after that... We're going to have my old uh, co-host, uh, Rattlesnake Ray, uh, coming on the second half hour. Ray is a rancher down in Arizona on the Mexican border. He's going to be uh, giving us an update on what's happening down there with all the illegals invading our country, not only uh, from Mexico, but uh, Muslims and uh, ISIS and uh, the Chinese are down there, the Chinese uh, I was really amazed when we went into Mexicali, the assistant governor, Baja, told me that there were like 150 Chinese restaurants in Mexicali alone. We now have North Korea in uh, Venezuela. Iran is in Venezuela. One of the comments that uh, the head of Russia, Putin, said was that if Hillary becomes president, he will destroy the United States. And he can. We can't detect their subs. Piece of crap. Bill Clinton gave the Chinese our age assistant. These Russian fighter planes have flown right over our destroyers. No more than 100 feet above. 
But if it wasn't a drill, a mock run, 80,000 troops, last I heard, in the Arctic. It's a very bleak picture, but I have hope that God will do something. Step in. Jesus will step in. Now, there, there are some boycott stores that we really should keep in mind. One is Target. I'm really happy every time I drive by my Target and see half the uh, parking lot empty. Most of the cars are employees. That's because they're allowing sodomites into the uh, ladies' restroom. Uh, also, Dasani Yogurt, uh, the owner, said he wants to bring in millions of Muslims. That's another one you have to boycott. Starbucks, another one. He doesn't want people with traditional families coming in to his stores. Okay, well, just let the sodomites go there, too. Just incredible. You know, little by, they just kept coming and coming and coming. I remember uh, growing up in San Francisco, I was going to start a straight parade uh, back in 1986. It's great to be straight. It's going to start at the Ferry Building. We're going to have straights on skates, the straights of Gibraltar, Garkin Straits Marching Band, Peter Bryant Lookalike Contest, Tykes on Bikes, instead of Dykes on Bikes. And then I get a, it hits the front page of the paper, the San Francisco paper, and I get a phone call from a reporter at the gay newspaper threatening me. He says, do you think you're going to get away with this? I said, wait a minute, this is an equal time parade. I'm going to have a straight parade. you got your gay parade. I'm going to have my straight parade. Well, how many people... You think you're going to come? I said, who knows, uh, maybe 30 or 40 in this town? But he, he says, who's to say some of your participants wouldn't be killed? I said, are you threatening me? He said, well, stay over in Yuppie Land, meaning Marin County, because you come over the city, you're going to be a high-profile target. I said, well, yes. So I went down to the gay bar in Sausalito, handed them out my business cards that says it's great to be straight. Well, they're all laughing. They think, oh, it means not to be on drugs. But there were three lesbians in there. They knew who I was, and they took all the cards up, and they put them in an ashtray and burned them. And they said, how dare you come in here? So I decided, well, I'll go up to Santa Rosa, 60 miles north of San Francisco. I'll go to a country western bar. Went in the country western bar, handed the bartender a stack of my cards here. Uh, i to pass these out, could you? Uh, it's great to be straight. And a little while later, I'm playing the pinball machine, and all of a sudden, the cards are thrown on the pinball machine. He goes, what are you bringing these in here for? I said, what the heck is this guy talking about? I looked over my shoulder, and there were three, two cowboys dancing with each other. I said, oh, my God, it's like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Country Western Gay Bar in Santa Rosa. They've ruined San Francisco. I mean, I grew up in San Francisco. I went to junior, uh, grammar school, junior high school, high school. And one of my fellow classmates from grammar school, well, he won't even set foot in San Francisco anymore. They said they've just ruined it. The liberals, the Chinese, the Chinese run the city now. The gays, you can't live there anymore. Which is once Skid Row is now million-dollar condos. I'm telling you, people, um, I know it was like the last time I was out in San Francisco was a few months ago, probably six months ago. And it was like future shock. I know there has to be progress. I know time changes everything, but um, let's hope we can get something to save this country that our forefathers built for us. Otherwise, it's all over.
I hope you boycott these stores. I hope you boycott these sports, the NBA. I call it the Negro Circus, the NFL. I mean, we can't find any other white players. Well, we're coming up on break here. And uh, like I said, I'm going to play uh, two uh, songs that were favorites of Papa Ralph's. And also, if you want to read about Papa Ralph, go to Amazon.com and get the book Dead Angel. It's about growing up with Jerry Garcia. I'm grateful that he's my best friend from five years old. And we're going to be playing a song from him uh, at the end of the show. But these two songs coming up, first two are for Papa Ralph. May he rest in peace. Girl again. Girl, I like oh, 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 oh. And you 
prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Real. 
Welcome back to America Betrayed. We're at our second half hour. Hope you enjoyed uh, Papa Ralph's music. That was two of his favorite songs. And like I said before, after the break, we were going down to see Rattlesnake Ray. Rattlesnake Ray has been my co-host, or was my co-host for many years before I uh, took off because of health reasons. Uh, but he's back. He's going to be giving us reports on what's going on down at the Arizona border. So right now, let's go down the Mexican border and find out what's going on with Ray. Wow, Ray, <laughs> looks like same old, same old huh, going on down there. Yeah, John, they tried to uh, overrun us several times here, but they're not successful. And uh, my stars and stripes are still flying proudly out here, and they're going to if I have anything to say about it. So, uh, yeah, still holding the, the fort right down here in the Mexican border. Actually, it's kind of standing outside right now, John, looking at Mexico. Yeah. In, uh, Ray, Ray, I've heard that a lot of Muslims, in fact, ISIS, have been coming across the border there in Arizona. Is that correct? It sure is correct, John. It's uh, sadly, sad to say it's correct. Uh, I've got friends of mine that uh, throughout the years I've met that are Border Patrol agents, Customs agents, uh, different law enforcement agents down here in the border. And we, believe me, we have a lot of them right here in Cochise County because uh, of our close proximity to the border. And they tell me all the time that, Boy, I'll tell you what, there's some people coming in here from countries who do not have the interests of America at at their heart. And uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, they, they, they can weed them out. These customs agents and Border Patrol agents are, are pretty well attuned to what's going on. And now a lot of these people are trying to get in here from Middle Eastern countries, and they're portraying themselves as being something else that that they're not. They're actually uh, integrating and uh, living in Mexico for for as long as they can, for years, and trying to take on uh, Mexican, uh, they're learning their language, they're, uh, and they're actually trying to uh, come across with Mexican accents in order to get in here um, basically portraying themselves as Mexicans when they're actually uh, from dangerous Muslim countries. So wow. it's, uh, it's something you won't ever hear on the media, John. I mean, you'll never hear it from the Hildebeest say anything like that. An old Muslim definitely is not going to say anything to run down his Muslim allies, you know, his insurgents that he wants to get into this country. So it's, it's hey, kind of uh, disarming when you hear what goes on. Ray, I, you know, I hear all this crap about, uh, uh, I'm just changing the speed here a little bit with uh, the BLM, the Black Lives uh, Matters uh, crap, and they keep saying they're going to kill all the honkies. I said, why don't you guys go down and start with the cowboys? Well, I'll tell you what, John, anytime Crack Lives Matter would like to come down around here, there's probably, uh, <laughs> there, there's a lot of cowboys around, but I can guarantee you one thing, John, there's a lot of other folks around here, too, who have a bunch of ammunition that they probably need to uh, recycle and make it refresh. So anytime Crack Lives Matter would like to come down, then uh, we could probably uh, accommodate them. Yeah, Ray, yeah. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I did this documentary film just recently, uh, 
Water the New Gold. There's a preview of it on uh, YouTube. Uh, just uh, type in Water the New Gold, John Clark, and that's a preview. Our hour-long the film will be ready, I hope, in the next uh, three or four weeks. Uh, let's hope for that. But, uh, you know, uh, being down there, we found out that, uh, you know, the Colorado River is going to dry up in about uh, two years. And uh, we also found out that uh, about six million Mexicans depend on uh, uh, that water from the Colorado River in northern Baja. And they said, well, where do you think they're going to go when they run out of water? And what about the 40 million people that are going to be affected by the Colorado River drying up? Now, in our film, uh, we showed that the government was gaining control of uh, all of this. The aquifer, there's no aquifer in the San Joaquin Valley. It's sinking two feet a year. Uh, there's no aquifer in uh, down by the Salton Sea, uh, down by Mexicali, where the, uh, the origin of the uh, San Andreas Fault is. And when that uh, goes again, uh, my friend is saying that, uh, who used to work for JPL, that uh, that land will sink and the Sea of Cortez will rush in and fill that whole Imperial Valley. Uh, but uh, we also found out if Lake Mead goes down another, I think it's six to eight feet, and uh, Arizona is going to be cut off uh, uh, by 30% of their water. Now, how do you feel about that? What do you think Arizonans can do? Or do you have to, that much uh, dependence on, on the Colorado where, where you're at? Uh, in the area that I'm at, John, we don't have that much dependence on the Colorado River. Probably, uh, oh, 100 miles to the the northwest, Tucson does get uh, water from the Colorado River. It's called the CAP Project, Central Arizona Project. Um, water out here in the west is, and always has been, right from the 1800s right up today. It's a, a very, uh, uh, it's a touchy issue, hot point issue. One of the big things we have around here is because uh, Arizona is a very desirable state, and it has been for the last uh, economic downturn when people are looking at the supposed global warming climate change throughout uh, the northeastern states and up throughout, you know, the cold states throughout the United States. We see a major influx of people who move in from uh, to, for the weather, and they're retirees. Uh, from California, we actually call them refugees. We call them California refugees who are moving in here. They're trying to escape the liberal socialist hellhole that these uh, left-wing commie SOBs have created for the good people of California. But what happens with that, John, is we have people coming in from all over the country. Uh, you know, just a, say Mississippi, for example, good people, but um, they're used to seeing a green, lush oasis and they get out here and the first thing they do is they water lawns and they try to turn the desert into the area they left from and then the other thing is uh, i do believe there's it's the, the it's the government plan i say john in order to if the government control the water i think they found out that they can't control americans with their guns americans aren't going to give up their guns but if yeah, they you're control the water, they can control us. That's what we found out in our investigation for the film, right? That, hey, uh, if we can't take the guns away, uh, what are they going to do about water? There are four sources. Now, uh, I'm finding out from my friend uh, who did the film with me, uh, who lives in San Diego, who was originally from Mexico. In fact, he was in the Mexican military at one time. Uh, yeah, we uh, filmed some areas, uh, exclusive areas in the hills east of uh, San Diego, 
where these houses had their own lake, but the lake was pretty much uh, a mud hole that completely dried up. And on one corner, there were 27 for sale signs just on one corner. Uh, and he's saying that people are panicking about uh, you know, this water thing. Uh, they, their houses are going to go down. It's going to affect 40 million people directly. That's just the people involved, directly, draw, directly involved with the, the Colorado River. Uh, it's, uh, uh, well, that's and, correct, John. You know, there's some areas down around uh, Yuma, Arizona, where the Colorado River, it, it, um, historically, it was very, very wide. It could be three to 400 yards wide in some areas. And uh, right now probably toward the summertime, you could go out there in the, the mighty Colorado River. You could actually uh, jump across it, and if you didn't have to jump across it, you could probably walk in it and not get the water above your knees because uh, they're just sucking so much water out of it. And that is one thing that Mexico, I mean, that water did traditionally, you know, historically run down into Mexico. And we've got it shut off so much that the Mexicans aren't getting anything from it, and like you said, if uh, there there's some Mexicans down there. I mean, there's a lot of good people in Mexico who are barely eking out in existence. And sometimes I wonder if if everything isn't a big plan, a big agenda that just it is very well thought out that can uh, you know destroy the economy of Mexico. Or Las Vegas is a big sore point on this Colorado uh, River issue because. The water over there, a lot of it goes for entertainment the same way when it runs out to California. It's, uh, you know, you see the multi-million dollar movie stars who are turning the desert into a lush green oasis by pumping water that could have gone for the use of crops. In the uh, that San Fernando Valley, uh, you know, Fresno area and whatnot up through there, that is, was really a... a I mean, it's the bread basket, the, the fruit basket, the vegetable uh, basket of America. And when farmers can't get water to water their crops in order to feed America, and you have uh, golf courses and people who just don't care as long as they have their little patch of green grass watered, then, you know, it's going to come down, gee, do I like my green grass here? Do I like my uh, fountains going off in Vegas or to rather have something to eat? So I think it's, hey. uh, yeah, yeah, they've really dropped the ball on it. Hey, uh, I want to give a toll-free number for people to call in if they want to talk to you, ask you some questions, or myself. Uh, toll-free number is 800-932-1980. If you want to uh, uh, com- make comments, you want to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about or uh, whatever, whatever you want to say, 800-932-1980 is the toll-free number to call in. I'd like to hear uh, what your opinions are of uh, what we've said so far. Uh, I think it's very critical uh, when you see our film come out, the full-length film, I, I think you'll realize uh, what a critical situation it is out there. You know, everybody said the El Nino was going to help, but all it did was hurt, and we knew that because what it did was grow all the grasses and weeds higher, and now you're seeing all the fires that are out of control down there. So it's going to be a hellhole. And I said right at the beginning of our film that this is, I think, the same thing happened a thousand years ago. It was a hundred-year drought, and I think this is what happened to a lot of the civilizations that all of a sudden disappeared, like the Mayans, because of a drought situation like this. You know, the weather changes all the time. 
look at the the, the deserts in the Africa, the, in the Middle East out there. Uh, where did all that oil came from? At one time, it was lush vegetation that was there, and it's gone. So uh, that happens. Ray, I wanted to. I promised somebody. Uh, one of the reasons why I came back doing the show is, uh, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Uh, we're going to be going over uh, many of them uh, that I know about, that I've investigated, that I know directly. Uh, like Sonny Bono, I knew. Uh, I know exactly what happened to him. I know what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, tonight, I just wanted to uh, explain on a promo that went out uh, that Jimmy Hoffa was ground up on a pig farm up in northern Michigan uh, because the pigs will eat the bones and everything. Uh, all this uh, nonsense about being under the stadium and their sidewalks. And uh, this other guy, uh, Frank, uh, supposedly uh, is the one who shot him. He did not shoot him. A man by the name of John Cirello is the one who shot uh, uh, Jimmy Hoffa and uh, uh, Frank is the one who owned the pig farm. But yet they're trying to uh, close the case by saying it was uh, this Frank who uh, shot Jimmy Hoffa. That's a bunch of nonsense. We could prove it. We have all the evidence to prove it. Now, that's uh, the one thing that I'm going to explain tonight. Uh, in other nights, I'm going to talk about my cousin, Marilyn Monroe, uh, who killed her, why they killed her, and so on. Some people think they may know. I don't think you do. But you'll find out. Uh, i probably talk about it on the next show. And then I'll be talking about Sonny Bono, exactly what happened to him, uh, JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, uh, JFK Jr., my friend Ted Gunderson, uh, what happened to all these people. We have a very evil force controlling. Uh, it's not our government anymore. Believe me, it's not. Uh, there's no difference between the Democrats or the, or the Republicans. Uh, it's all a criminal enterprise. And the only way to uh, change it is to take it back by force. There is no other way. I don't see any way at all. We, uh, the voting is all rigged. I know uh, many years ago I uh, went up to uh, uh, Nebraska to uh, uh, investigate uh, Senator Hagel. Uh, I found out Senator Hagel, when he ran, uh, was an unknown, but he ran against Ben Nelson, who was a, a, an incumbent, very well liked, but yet uh, he won by 80%. Uh, Senator Hagel. So I did a little investigation and found out he was on the board of directors of Diebolt. Who's Diebolt? Diebolt makes the voting machines. What did Obama do? He appointed him as Secretary of Defense because Diebolt counted the votes the last election. So, And I've told people that if Hillary gets in, it's all over for this country unless you do something about it. The country will be toast. It would be the only time I'd ever consider moving out of the country. It will be an absolute hellhole. She will go beyond what Obama's done. And like I said, my show tried to expose Obama back in 2008, but nobody would listen. You remember that, Ray, with Phil Berg? Oh, I sure do, John. I'll tell you what, it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing that, you know, when you say conspiracy theories and whatnot, and there can be a conspiracy theory basically formulated, built, manipulated to, to fit any situation, but... uh. I do remember when I first met you and talked with you, I was I was quite cynical. Uh, I couldn't believe what you were telling me, that I just could not believe in my heart that a person living in the United States of America could, could absolutely harbor such hatred for this country. I, I just didn't see that being possible. It's, it's not something that I ever imagined, and the more I talked with you, the more I read, the more I... 
Oh, you know, I never would watch the the dinosaur ABC, CNN type uh, media, but the more that I think we're aware now in this new technology age, and I'm I'm very I'm a luddite or whatever I guess they call it as far as that goes, but uh, I, I was just uh, my eyes were opened as to how corrupt and how almost anti-American with their own agenda, their own personal agenda, that these scumbag politicians are. And I've always been a bit more aligned with the Republicans. I'm not one that swallows their Kool-Aid, but I just consider them to be the lesser of the two evils. And I still think they are a lesser of the two evils as far as our gun control is concerned. But uh, it was actually awakening, John. It, it, it's, a, it's a scary, scary thing. A lot yeah. of people probably don't want to deal with it, but uh, well, Ray, the more yeah. that I looked into it, it's correct. Yeah, well, don't feel bad, Ray, because most people get their news by the, the controlled media. Uh, and I, for a long time, people thought Fox News was, uh, you know, the good guys. They're all they are, controlled opposition. In fact, a Saudi prince owns, uh, well, I think he's a prince, but I know he's a Saudi Arabian who owns uh, most of the majority of, of uh, Fox. Uh, the Bush crime family, the Clinton crime family are tied into the Saudis. Uh, one Saudi prince said he's going to spend $40 billion to turn the United States into an Islamic country. So people, wake up, better do something. Because like the part I read at the beginning of the show, that is the future of America. Unless you stand up and beat, like I said, be the only time that... Uh, well, John, I, never, I mean... It, that, I, I would I would agree with you on that. I mean, it's very very difficult to sort it out because uh, I honestly think there is everything, every single thing that that this country is uh, involved in. I think is is just intertwined with every other country in the world. These people, you know, they say, well, it's globalist, globalist, but uh, I think you have to look out for your own. But uh, I think there's just a, a corrupt finger. Um, every, on the pulse of every single thing that goes on in this nation with every other corrupt uh, country in the world, and it's not very corrupt. I think uh, it, it's eventually, it seems as though it's become the way. It's the, the way of business. And I do remember you telling me one time, John, I said, you know what, I'd love to go into, uh, if I ever became a senator or something, went into Washington, D.C., I, I said, you know what, them SOBs would not corrupt me and everything. I, I said, I would I would stand up to them. I mean, if I had to throw one through a door or something, came in my office room and started trying to corrupt me or bribe me or whatever, and I remember you saying to me, but you would have to uh, be concerned about the life of your family. Totally. Exactly my legs out for underneath me, John, what you said. I mean, these are, these are hitmen, assassin, scum, scumbag, POSs that I, I never thought I would say this about the people, uh, you know, supposedly the politicians that have a, your best interest in this country, but I don't think there's a one of them that I would trust for one, one second. I mean, no, maybe there's a couple good. that their intentions, but they're, they're scumbags. Well, the hitman that I got a lot of my information from said these are ruthless, ruthless people. Now, the hitman I talked to uh, became a hitman for mostly people in the Middle East for the CIA and FBI. Uh, but originally, he was a hitman for the Teamsters. He put people in cement. I think you know who I'm talking oh, about. The, the, 
Sure. So the, John, I think the Clinton crime family uh, makes the, the, the Gambinos, <laughs> you know, John Gotti and all those, those guys are Boy Scouts compared to the Clinton well, crime family. Yeah, JFK and RFK were ruthless killers also. They were really ruthless killers. People don't realize that. They had a lot of people killed besides my cousin Marilyn, but also their friend Mary Myers, which people are not aware of. But we're going to be talking about that on another show. Uh, we're coming up on the end of the show, Ray, and I just want to talk a little bit about my other friend. We had uh, I played some uh, music and dedicated a show to my friend Papa Ralph, who was uh, riding motorcycles with me. He was a good friend for over 50 years. Uh, he got killed on his way to uh, uh, Sturgis, uh, over 80 years old, and he was uh, riding by himself up to uh, uh, Sturgis. But another friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine, uh, Jerry Garcia, unfortunately, Jerry went left, I went right, uh, but uh, he was still a good friend from five and six years old. I wrote a book called Dead Angel. It's on Amazon. Uh, if you'd like to pick it up and read it, it's about our early years with Jerry and also with Papa Ralph and Pete Page and and Bob Roberts and uh, Filthy Phil and uh, all the others uh, that were still are friends of mine, the ones that are still around. Filthy Phil still around. Pete Page is still around. Uh, a few others, but uh, uh, these are, like I said, you find out as you get older who your friends are when you when you reach 70 or 80 years old, you're saying, now who are my friends? And you look around and you say, well, these are my friends because they're still here. They really care about me. So I just want to end the show with uh, uh, one of my favorite songs from uh, Jerry from the Grateful Dead. I think you know which one it is. And hopefully, Ray, you'll continue being my co-host because people really like to hear you. You, uh, We'd like to get more information from you, especially from Cocaine Bahrain and what's going on over there in Douglas, Arizona, and uh, also the other customs agents. Uh, we had some really good times down there. And uh, But my wife said, get, get her a smaller horse next time we come down to your ranch, okay? Yeah, I'm going to bring uh, one of the horses in front of Walmart, John. We just have to put quarters in it for her. Oh, yeah, that's a quarter horse, right? Yeah. Yep, that's right. Well, darn, that's what I I always thought. That's what a quarter horse was. That's why I kept putting quarters in. But uh, yeah, great. Hey, uh, like I said, go to see uh, Dead Angel uh, on Amazon.com. My other book, Posan, P-O-Z-A-N. There's a picture of me and Sonny Bono in there. If you like to pick that up, and uh, it's a, a pretty scary story. Uh, you've read it, Ray. I. Uh, I've read both of them, John. An interesting read. Yeah. Uh, two, two parts of my life, and hopefully I'll keep doing the show. It's been many years since I uh, went away from this because of health reasons, uh, but I feel a little better now, so hopefully we can do this. Well, maybe uh, you'll, you'll be able to keep uh, continue on doing the show, John. Just don't attend any Kill uh, the Beast Clinton rally, so uh, your, your health might stay better then. Okay, Ray, stay safe down there. We're glad to have you back on board, back in the saddle again. Here we go with uh, Touch of Gray from uh, Grateful Dead.
Political, religious, and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival for Wednesday night, uh, 17th day of August, Year of Our Lord, 2016. Our guest tonight should be James Corbett. He should be joining us after the first break, calling in from Japan. Before we get to James, do market report, a couple other commentaries. Then we'll see what's going on in the Far East, Middle East, and uh, wherever. Uh, let's start out with the market report. 
Gold was up $2.60 today to $1,349.40 per ounce. Silver was down a dime to $19.71 an ounce. Platinum was flat at 1121 Palladium was down 8 to $697 per ounce. Uh, one of the things about this, I looked at this earlier today, this part of the market report, and when we talked about it in the afternoon program, at that time, platinum was also down. It came back where it's just flat for the day. It was neither up nor down. Uh, but it was down when I first looked at it, which meant gold was up, silver was down, platinum was down, palladium was down. Of the four, of those four precious metals, gold was the only one that was up. Now, that doesn't prove anything, right? Again, these are just, this, this can be nothing but an aberration. This is, but it illustrates a point that is important, at least to me. I can't tell you it's God's truth exactly, but I can tell you that it strikes me as fundamentally true. The primary reason for gold to be going up is because we are faced with significant monetary problems in this country and in the world. There's problems with the monetary system. And gold is the monetary metal. I would say that 80% of gold's value is predicated on whatever's happening in the monetary system, and 20% of gold is based on, of gold's value is based on industrial demand, jewelry demand, and so on. Gold is primarily, predominantly, a monetary metal, and it's up, whether it's going up or down, it should be inversely proportional to whatever's happening to the dollar and the monetary, the fiat dollar and the monetary system in general. Silver is less a monetary metal. It's a monetary metal, but from my perspective, about 20% of silver is, it's about 20% of its price is based on monetary realities. And about 80% of silver's price is based on industrial realities. All right, how much the industrial demand silver. Um, it's a monetary metal, but not to the same degree as gold. And what we saw earlier today, gold was the only metal that was up. Silver was down, platinum was down, palladium was down. You know, there's any number of reasons why this may have happened, in fact. But this, this, can, this, this separation between gold and the other three metals, it illustrates an argument. Not necessarily an axiom, but an argument, a possibility. Gold is up because it is the number one monetary metal. The rest of the metals are down because they are more, they're less involved with monetary systems and primarily with industrial demand. Um, well, it, it's just, for me, it's useful to think of things, to think of these metals in that way, and it helps me to hmm, kind of understand what's happening. Uh, the U.S. dollar index was down earlier today, just barely. It's currently at 94.63. Um, it's down 0.11 in the aftermarket. The crude oil is uh, up today. It's a nickel in the aftermarket, and I think it was over a dollar uh, during the, the American markets so while they were open earlier today. Crude oil's price, in any case, right now is $46.84 per barrel. 
Dow Jones average is 18,574. That's up 22 for the day. NASDAQ is up just two points to 5,229. Uh, New York Stock Exchange is up 15 points to 10,825. Standard & Poor's is up four points to 2,182. Not a lot of change in the markets one way or the other. A little bit up, a little bit down, depending on uh, what you're looking at. Not too much. Not big changes in the metals either. Um, so kind of a not a big reaction today to the Fed's statements. What else do we have to talk about? Uh, let me. Uh, I don't want to do that right now. Hyperinflation. Well, here's something just for start start the festivities. Southern California orders 82,000 people to evacuate over wildfire. Authorities in Southern California ordered the evacuation of 82,000 people on Tuesday after a wildfire broke out in a mountain pass to rapidly engulf 15,000 acres. There have been reports that this wildfire may have been set. Somebody may be responsible. This may not just be a wildfire in the sense that OG lightning struck and it started a fire. Maybe that this was caused by human uh, human intervention, either intentional or accidental, but I understand that somebody's been arrested, and maybe it'll turn out to be responsible, and maybe it won't. Uh, yeah, he's been, according to Frank, our producer, he says they caught the guy and charged him with the, um, with the arson. Officials said about 700 firefighters were battling to control the blaze, in the latest of a series of wildfires that have blackened nearly 300,000 acres of the drought-parched U.S. Uh, United States West. The so-called Blue Cut Fire erupted in heavy brush. It's west of Interstate 15, the main half freeway between Las Vegas and Los Angeles, forcing the foreclosure of one stretch of highway. In all, about 82,000 people were ordered to flee as flames destroyed an unknown number of houses. Uh, well, it's a lot of people. 82,000 people ordered to evacuate. That's pretty serious. Uh, it's, it's not news that, adverse, that it directly affects the economy, but it is interesting, and it's, it's evidence of the... Of the the economic stress that we're feeling in Southern California, in part from the drought that's been lasting for a decade or more. There have been problems here, and I wonder how this is going to be resolved. Sooner or later, we're going to run out of water. Um, the interesting thing, of course, Southern California is a desert. Desert climate doesn't really have adequate supplies of water for itself. Uh, we'll watch and see. There could be problems coming our way. Bigger problems, much bigger than what we've seen so far. Um, here's an article. Who could win a currency war? The answer is no one, according to Bloomberg. It's been a year since a sudden 1.9% decline in the Chinese yuan rattled global markets and prompted fears of global currency war. China has mostly soothed nerves by moderating the renminbi swoon since then. Renminbi, of course, is 
and the yuan are, so far as I know, basically identical, although one may be domestic and one may be foreign. So we're talking about the Chinese currency. But what should really put minds to rest is knowledge that no one, not even China, could win a true currency war. And there's a point to this. He's right. We see these countries that are fighting with each other, uh, trying to reduce uh, their, the value of their currency, fighting to inflate their currency and devalue its purchasing power. Why? Well, the reason is if we can lower the value of the dollar, for example, it makes American products more competitive on, it, on international markets, and it should increase our exports. That's the theory. And it's been true for most of the past, but maybe not so true anymore. Same thing with Japan, same thing with China. Um, virtually every nation wants to inflate its currency. They want to cause inflation in order to make their currency less valuable. And that, make, that will make it easier for foreign countries to buy their products. Now, this is a kind of fool's paradise. This is a situation where you keep the value, I'll devalue my currency, then you devalue your currency, then the next guy devalues his currency, and we fight each other all the way down until finally one or more of us have succeeded in proving that our currency is worthless. What happens to the people of your country while government is diminishing the value of your currency. It really means that people are being, uh, they're being impoverished by their own country. When government, insofar as government succeeds in causing inflation, you're not being paid as much as you used to be. It might be that you used to make, uh, say, $100 a day. If government can cause 10% inflation, you're still getting $100, but it only has 90 dollars in purchasing power. You're being robbed by inflation. Inflation does not serve you well, in spite of the fact that many of us like it and we depend on it. For example, uh, virtually anyone in this country who's ever bought a house with a mortgage has been encouraged to take the loan from the bank. Someone has told you you'll be able to repay the debt with cheaper dollars. Because of inflation, you'll be able to borrow $200,000 and pay, who say, say $2,000 a month. Well, when you get to the end of that loan, you'll still be paying $2,000 a month, but because of inflation, that $2,000, 20, 30 years from now, it may only have $500 in purchasing power. So you're paying off your loan with cheaper dollars, and people encourage you, you've been encouraged to say, oh, go ahead, borrow the money, stick your neck out, uh, take that loan, because when you get, by the time you get to the end of it, you'll be paying it off in, in dirt cheap dollars. Well, that, it's a reason why a lot of people say, yay, hooray for inflation. But the truth is, we're all diminished by it, at least yeah, we really are. Anyone who's using currency, unless you can manage to negotiate a raise, you're being hurt by inflation. You're paying higher prices for products, and you're getting less purchasing power from your dollars. Whatever you're being paid for your salary or your wages, you're making less money. Inflation is contrary to the people's interests. And when we get into these currency wars... They try to inflate their currencies. 
it's really contrary to their own people's interest. Every one of these governments are doing what's best for their export industries, which doing what's best for perhaps multinational corporations. And they're saying, we're going to inflate the currency, and that will make your product, the products less expensive. You'll be able to sell more to foreign countries thanks to inflation. Well, it's good for multinational corporations within each one of the within, within each one of the countries. It's good for global trade, but it's not good for the domestic for the people within the domestic economy of the nation. It's not generally good for them, and it leads you to wonder why are they doing this? Why are they hurting the people? How how can they expect that we're going to correct? the problems in the global economy. Right now, people sit back and say the global economy is in a state of recession, maybe even depression. Trade is down dramatically over the last number of years. It has not improved significantly. The Baltic Dry Index, which measures the amount of uh, tonnage of cargo that's being hauled from country to country by ships, it was that index was over 12,000 a few years ago. Right now, it's down below 500. I mean, that's an extraordinary fall, and it's evidence that the economy, the global economy, has all but collapsed. Certainly, in a recession, arguably in a depression. Um, how will that be replaced? How will that be improved? How will we have a recovery? So long as nations can inflate their currencies and cause them to be devalued. All it does is impoverish the people of the nation of Japan, for example, or the people of the nation of the United States, or the people of, of Europe, and so on. They are, they are impoverished by means of inflation. How can they buy more products? How can we restore the global economy if the majority of the people are increasingly impoverished by inflation? And the reason we're able to have this inflation is because, or the reason we do have it apparently is they want to serve the new world order. They want to serve the multinational corporations. They're not concerned about serving the people of each of their nations. But in the end, insofar as we're impoverished, we can't buy more things, we can't buy more things, the economy continues to, de to deteriorate. And all of this is made possible because we have fiat currencies. We have a fiat debt-based monetary system. Not an asset-based system. If we had an asset-based monetary system that was based on gold or silver, inflation and deflation become almost irrelevant. They don't, ha they don't happen to the same extent as we can see right now. They can't be as easily manufactured. You owe an ounce of gold, you pay an ounce of gold. You owe an ounce of silver, you pay an ounce of silver. You can't change that ounce of silver to a half ounce. It either is an ounce or it's not. And if we had, point I'll make that I'm trying to reach for as a conclusion here, if we had continued with our asset-based monetary system that we used to have and was mandated, continues to be mandated by our Constitution, if we'd continued with that, we may not have had the same exhilarating economic highs, but we also wouldn't have had the same almost terrifying economic lows. We would have had a more steady economy that was based on real productivity, real moral values. We would be 
working hard and understanding that if we worked hard, we could get ahead and we wouldn't be robbed by our government causing inflation. As it is right now, most of the people in the world understand that they can be robbed by their own, by, by their own government insofar if their government causes more inflation. And most of them are trying to do just that. Um, it can't work out well for us. And the only solution to the problem may be to abandon the fiat monetary system. We're going to take a break for a couple of commercials. I'll be back, and James Corbett should be joining us in just a couple of moments. Please stay tuned. subject to hormone imbalance. And when this happens, men can experience osteoporosis, memory loss, irritability, blood sugar imbalance, weight gain, enlarged prostate, erectile dysfunction, and risk of stroke. The human endocrine system manufactures hormones. Why not feed your system plant nutrition to make the hormones that are right for you? For centuries, these herbs have been used to balance the male hormone system. Men, you've waited long enough. For the male hormone formula, call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663 for the male hormone formula, 866-229-3663 or online at thepowerherbs.com, 866-229-3663 where your healthcare options just became endless. Since the beginning of the United States, Kings have sought it. Nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices.
Hi folks, I'm Alfred Addisk, and this is Financial Survival. Our guest is James Corbett. He's been working and living in Japan for the past, uh, what, 12 years now, James? Is that true? That is correct, sir. Yep. He's the founder of the Corbett Report website, and uh, he started that in 2007 as an outlet for independent critical analysis on politics, society, history, and economics. And he's also editorial writer of the International Forecaster and puts out, I have no idea how many podcasts you put out a week. How many do you suppose you put out on average? Uh, it really varies. Right now, not that many, but usually I'd say I've got four or five reports coming out a week. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, see your, I see articles that uh, reference you or, or are written by you on a regular basis on the Internet, and uh, you've certainly making a name for yourself on an international basis. So welcome once again to this program. Um, we got an article here. Or I got an article here from Spiked Magazine. Syria, the unraveling continues. The weakening of ISIS is no victory for the West. Certainly looks as if ISIS is in retreat. Over the past couple of months, lost territory in both Iraq and Syria. Uh, ISIS, which wanted to hear its adherence quickly by dint of its sheer success. Its fearful potency is now losing them just as quickly as its failures mount, mount and its impotence emerges. Is ISIS old news? Are they finished? Are they going down the drain? And Are they likely to be replaced? Or what happens when ISIS is gone in the Middle East? Well, I think it's too early to declare them gone yet, but uh-huh. uh, it is interesting to think about if this particular boogeyman or reason for war does go away, what will be the, uh, the ongoing rallying call? And I think it's pretty obvious that really the U.S.'s objective here and their NATO allies has been since the very beginning to get rid of Assad. I mean, that's what ultimately this is all about. And any way they can do that, I think, will be the, uh, the point of it. So now you'll notice, for example, in the last couple of weeks, all of the attention has turned to Aleppo, where there's a siege going on of one sort or another. The uh, Syrian army has surrounded Aleppo, and they're claiming, the, uh, the uh, uh, international media, BBC, and all of these places are claiming that basically Assad is just, you know, going on one of his murderous rampage sprees, killing his own citizens with glee um, because he's such an evil, horrible person. Um, whereas when you look at what's actually happening in Aleppo, um, it's, there's so many layers of propaganda going on. Uh, one of the latest is that, uh, oh, the, uh, the last doctors alive in Aleppo, there's only 16 doc- doctors left that are treating all of the wounded from the entire town, and uh, they're, they're pleading, won't someone come in and think of the children and bomb Assad to smithereens? Um, and the more you look into that, you more you realize that this is an alleged letter from alleged doctors who may or may not exist. The, uh, the last doctor in Aleppo, quote-unquote, has been reported many times in the past. This is the last doctor, and it looks like he was just killed, blah, blah, blah. And now we've got this letter from 16 new doctors. I mean, there's so many layers of propaganda going on right now, and it's all centering on Assad, Assad, Assad. And so I think that regardless of what happens on the ISIS front, the uh, the... The real reason for war is to get regime change, and I don't think the U.S. is going to be happy until they achieve that. Well, with all this, these layers of propaganda dedicated to dethroning Assad, is that a little bit like layers of propaganda dedicated to keeping uh, Trump out of the White House? 
Or layers of propaganda related to Hussein or Gaddafi. I think there are definite parallels. But yes, I understand um, that, and that really raises a question. That used to be that we at least thought we, we it at least appeared that we had an objective access to the news. Get some objective facts. Does anyone report the news anymore, or is it all just propaganda? Do we all make it up in order to suit whatever the personal interests are of? Every any particular media outlet. Well, um, maybe we're all Pontius Pilate these days. What is truth? Um, I mean, this is the the real question here. When everything is spin, what what is real? And uh, I was just rereading um, a bit of Guy Debord's uh, The Society of the Spectacle. He's a French, unfortunately Marxist philosopher, but one who did some um, good work on the idea that we have turned into a society that is governed by spectacle, by images, by um, just the, the, the sort of representation of things rather than things themselves, which is so much more true today than it probably was when the board was writing in the early 20, in the mid 20th century. Um, and here we are where everything we get is mediated largely increasingly these days through the uh, internet, but still through TV and other um, formats where all we're seeing is images that are being presented to us as stories, and we think we know what's going on because we saw an image of this, or we and then we saw an image of that. Um, but that's really just spectacle, and it turns our entire society into one that is governed by uh, governed by our perception of things rather than things that we actually experience. And I think that's coming to a I don't know. I don't want to say coming to a head because everything's always coming to a head. But it is starting to have more and more of an effect on the way that we are living our lives. And I think we're starting to see people really becoming rageful, getting enraged by what they read on the Internet, usually by looking at their same few partisan sources of information and getting enraged by what they see the, you know, those other guys are up to. And never looking at the bigger picture of this and what it really means um, for people's day-to-day lives. We just lost James, apparently. Or I'm here, just... I'm here. Okay. So what you were saying, what this meant to people's, in, in relation to people's daily lives. Every, yes. So, I mean, I think the ultimate takeaway from this, again, is part of this, this ongoing amping up of the, the, the culture war, the divide and conquer, the, the hating on each other and uh, on our neighbors. Whereas, I don't know about you, but in my day-to-day life, I get along with most of the people I interact with. I mean, I, I think we're starting to, I mean, it's almost like people are living double lives now, that on the internet, you become this rage-filled person who's just seething with hatred for, you know, the, those others who have those other ideas. Whereas, you know, I'd like to think that in our regular actual human-to-human interactions, we're still able to, to understand and sympathize and empathize with other human beings and try to see things from their point of view and, and maybe agree to disagree. Um, I, I, that there's becoming a smaller and smaller space for that in our, in our interactions, certainly online, and I think that might be starting to encroach on our day-to-day interactions with real humans as well. I'm not sure. I understand exactly what you're saying. I think it's a good observation. I think you're suggesting that we are becoming a little bit schizophrenic, that half of our life is devoted to the people around us. We actually have to deal with them. And the other half is devoted to what we perceive over the Internet. And while we may make, you know, we we get along with the people that are close by, we get on the Internet, and it fuels a certain amount of rage. 
And I'm wondering, is that rage, you're, if I'm understanding you correctly, I, you seem to think that maybe the rage that we pick up out of the media is going to be going to translate into our personal lives, real lives, reality with friends and neighbors and loved ones. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's not, it's not such a theoretical connection. Let's look at something very specific that happened this week. You may or may not know that a group called DC Leaks just apparently leaked a bunch of information on George Soros and his Open Society Foundation. Yep which exposed a bunch of emails, including emails proving what had been reported previously but dismissed as conspiracy theory by the mainstream establishment media, which was that Soros has provided uh, $33 million of funds to various groups that were involved with the protests in Ferguson and uh, the, the real the beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, now, now we actually have documentation on this, and we have the internal emails that were being sent back and forth and the, uh, the various groups that were being supported here that were literally paying to bus people in from outside uh, Ferguson into Ferguson so that they could start these protests and uh, continue them on. Uh, that's a really specific example of how uh, there are powers, powers that shouldn't be, uh, you know, people with, with vast amounts of resources that are directing those resources toward fomenting civil unrest in society. And I think that's one way that this is starting to, to, to take place in real life. It, it was a sort of internet online war that is becoming a real on-the-streets type of war. You know, we're talking about a character, George Soros, who in a sense is like a James Bond villain, a little bit like Goldfinger. And he's using his massive wealth to do what he wants to do in the world. And the question is, we can't say that's a surprise necessarily. I think anyone who gets too much money, they get the thing, they believe they can do whatever they want to do. But why hasn't someone sent 007 out to get him? I mean, there have been, it's, it's common knowledge that Soros has claimed that he wants to destroy the United States of America. Why is he being protected? And I can imagine the reason, but I'm curious, why hasn't anyone gone after him? Do you have an idea? Well, who would have the resources to go after a James Bond villain like that? I mean, it requires the resources, uh, similar resources to what he himself can muster. And uh, obviously, you and I, and those of us who are listening to this broadcast, I would imagine most of them, do not have those types of resources. The people that would would be nation-state actors or other rich billionaires or that, that sort of thing most of whom, I think, are on his side, uh, one way or another. And even the ones that oppose, I mean, there is a kind of a left-right schism even up at the top of the, you know, the upper echelons of power that shouldn't be. But the ultimate number one rule of that game is do not upset the game itself. You can, you know, do this or that to the other player, but you never do anything that would expose the whole game. And I think that's, that's ultimately what we have. I, I imagine at the very, very top echelons of power, you have something of a Mexican standoff going on where everyone has the goods on someone else. And uh, that's why no one ever, you know, spills the goods on, on the people at the top because they can expose the whole game. Are you suggesting that George Soros isn't acting independently, but is essentially a front man for one or more governments? Oh, I, I don't know if it's a government thing. I don't think this is in the nation-state game. I think that we're, we're beyond that in many ways. And I think that Soros is one reflection of that post-nation-state era where there are now groupings of individuals who have 
more power than nation states themselves. And yeah. I don't think Soros can can wield that power by himself unilaterally, but I think he obviously has like-minded people um, in some of those positions that, that clearly do support what he's doing. Do you think they support him out of for ideological reasons, or how many of our how, how many sit back and say I agree with George Soros and I'm going to support this guy? How many do it because George Soros is paying them? <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I guess we can kind of directly see the uh, the people who are on the payroll and you know the, their obvious monetary incentive and all of this. But I think there is an ideological aspect to it as well. There are people who genuinely and truly believe in global government. Um, you know, as the the type of ideal that uh, some people might believe it to be, um, and they they're they're uh, among that subsection of people. There are people who believe that sort of any method to get there will be okay, including deception of uh-huh. various sorts. And I think Soros would be one of that ilk, and I'm sure there are many others who agree with him, especially in that super class identified by Henry Kissinger's uh, mini me, David Rothkopf, in a book, I believe in 2008, which was called Superclass, where he argued we are in a post-nation state era, and there's about 6,000 transnational actors on the world stage who have the ability to influence world events um, through the the resources that they can muster and uh, that they're in the groups that they're privy to. And this is no longer the realm of conspiracy theory. It's now members of that superclass coming out and talking about how the superclass is, you know, the ones that are really calling the shots. I've got an article from the Associated Press that talks about divided America. Temperatures rise, temperatures rise, U.S. splits. And they talk about uh, the difference between liberal versus conservative is no longer absolutely clear. And they raise, they at least imply that maybe the reason we see Trump in the Republican Party and we see Sanders in the Democratic Party isn't simply because people are fed up with the establishment. But maybe we're getting a new set of values. And the big tent Republicans, and the big tent Democrats, somehow don't accommodate this new set of values. They point out that the global warming issue, it's more divisive than abortion or gay marriage. They focus on this global warming issue quite a lot. Um, where are we are we on the verge of seeing a, a serious change in the Republican Party, serious change in the Democrat Party? Could we see the emergence of third parties that focus primarily on one issue? Somebody the GMO party, the abortion party, the gay marriage party, for or against. Could those parties begin to emerge or will they always just be wings of uh, the big tent? I, I'm skeptical as to whether those types of parties could survive, but I think that there is, I mean, if there has ever been a time for those types of specific and focused third parties to arise, I, I would say it's in this context. And they have arisen before in American history. Um, the first ever third party in the U.S. was the Anti-Masonic Party uh, that was formed in New York in the late 1820s. And uh dissolved in 1838, but did have a, uh, an effect on the elections during that time period. So this type of thing has arisen in American politics before. One would think that at this moment, there is the biggest uh, groundswell of support for some sort of third party alternative, which is also, I mean, it's interesting to look at the way the Libertarian Party would seem to be posed to take that place, but seems to be shooting itself in the foot at every possible term, alienating their own fan base by being 
anti-Second Amendment and uh, arguing for greater restrictions on speech and things of that sort, just baffling positions for libertarian candidates to be taking. So um, th- 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 there's still that void. And I think that's definitely what's being pointed to in this election cycle. And I think you're right. The traditional left and right divide is not quite uh, – it, it's not per- pertaining in the same way anymore. I mean, look at Trump and the policies he's supporting. A lot of them are not traditional Republican policies. If anything, I mean, he is he, uh, he is a bit of a Democrat in a lot of ways, or what we would have thought of as a Democrat. But in other ways, I, you know, he de- identifies with traditional Republican uh, issues. I think there is at a change that's taking today. place. Yeah, it's hard to know for sure yeah, where exactly. Trump identifies. He, he, I'm not Good sure point. he exactly knows. Um, he impresses me as someone. If you need a tra- railroad from New York to San Francisco, get Trump. He'll build it and he'll get it in fast, gone time, and under price. Uh, if you're looking for a philosopher, probably you ought to look a little further. This. Uh, Well, we'll talk more about that in a moment. We're going to take a break for some commercials. I'll be back with James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. In just a moment, please stay tuned to Financial Survival. side effects of aspirin, ibuprofen, or prescription drugs. They can lower immunity and cause dependency. Is there a safe alternative? I'm herbalist Wendy Wilson, and I prefer willow bark and meadowsweet herbs to control pain, fever, aches, and inflammation. God's herbs are good, and you won't be disappointed. Call Apothecary Herbs for pain or extra strength pain relief formula, toll-free, 866-229-3663, That's 866-229-3663, International, 704-875-8010, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188 That's 800-375-4188 Protect yourself and your family. I've 
folks. I'm Alfred Adasker with James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. Mentioned in the previous segment, talked about the Libertarian Party shooting itself in the foot by embracing ideas that are foreign to its own constituency. And it reminds me of a couple of points. First off, back six, eight years ago, six, I suppose, the Tea Party sprung up in Austin, Texas. I was around at the time. I was in that vicinity at the time. I watched it happen. They had, it was really, they had some exhilarating meetings. There was something really exciting um, and inspiring. These, the bunch of people were sincere. They, they were moving in a particular direction. They were pleased with themselves. They were pleased with their opportunity. But pretty soon, new people came in. And they were intelligent, articulate. They took control. And the Tea Party never did seem to regain its original enthusiasm. When we talk about the libertarians shooting themselves in the foot, are we talking about just stupidity, ignorance, or are we talking about the are we is, is it possible that the government has infiltrated and put people in positions of power whose business is to at least neuter the particular third-party movements, Black Panthers, Tea Party, whatever. Does that sound like I've been reading too many uh, Alex Jones uh, <laughs> editorials? Have I become no, it, too it, paranoid, it, or am I maybe, is there some truth to this? Well, it's perfectly plausible. I have no data to back that up per se, but I can say that, it, it, you know, even if that weren't the case, and even if this was just a spontaneous phenomenon of a party that is, you know, it, for the first time in a long time, positioned to actually take up a part of the vote, a substantial part of the vote, uh, it, it could be just the way that those types of calculations are made on a political scale um, that it ends up shooting itself in the foot. Uh, what really what the Libertarian Party should be positioning itself as right now is the truly third party, the true alternative to the Democrats and the Republicans. It is not left. It is not right. And sometimes people frame it as saying libertarianism is, oh, we take some you know, social ideas from the left and some uh, economic values from the right, and that's what – no, that, that isn't it. Libertarianism is its own political philosophy that rests on the idea of the freedom of the individual. And I think if someone could articulate that message very clearly as an alternative – there would be a lot of people that are hungrier now than ever before for a real viable alternative to this two-party monstrosity. That is not what is happening right now. And it looks like the Libertarian Party, again, whether it was infiltrated or whether this is just the party doing it to itself, looked like it went for the safest possible candidates uh, you know, to try to, to basically take advantage of the death spiral of the GOP right now and suck up some of those votes. So they went with... Uh, Gary Johnson, who, of course, was also, I believe, at the helm in 2012 and I think got something like 1% of the popular vote. Um, and uh, his, his uh, running mate uh, this time is uh, Bill Weld, the former governor of Massachusetts, who is also a gun grabber. He uh, doesn't like the Second Amendment. He said that uh, AR-15s are a weapon of mass destruction and handguns are even worse. Uh, they've talked about uh, needs to limit uh, speech. They've talked about, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think Johnson famously said something to the effect of he was posed the question, do you think a, uh, 
a Jewish baker should be forced to bake a Nazi cake. And he said, well, you know, sometimes you've got to bake a cake. <laughs> I mean, uh, of course, obviously, a, a, a sort of a, a play on that recent um, uh, case of the, the Christian bakery having to bake a, a, a wedding cake for a, a gay couple and being forced to do so by the state, because otherwise it would be discrimination. Well, the libertarian principle is, yeah, no, a business owner gets to decide what happens with their business. And the way that if you don't like that, then you don't buy a cake from them. That is your way of getting back. You don't go in with the, the, the police yeah. state force of yeah. the, the state and give them the power to decide what businesses can or can't or should or shouldn't or must or must not do. Um, it's just baffling that a libertarian candidate would be on the side of the police state in something like this. But that's the position we're at, and it means that there still still is this gaping, wide-open hole for a true freedom candidate. Can you imagine if Ron Paul was running as a libertarian candidate right now and how much different this election would be? I understand. When we talk about the libertarian party being the party that advocates freedom of the individual, they almost, by definition, have to be the party that is opposed to the establishment. The establishment is there to tell all the peons what to do. If they believe it's their right to tell people what to do and to control them, it's clearly the whole idea of an establishment violates the idea of freedom of the individual. It certainly challenges it. And this would be a time. Do you want an alternative? They should be presenting themselves as an alternative, not to the Republicans or to the Democrats, but to the establishment. Or at least yes. that's the way it appears to me. Yes. And, uh, yes. And here's the way to look at it. It isn't the, the fundamental overarching theme of this election is not left versus right. It is uh -huh. up versus down. It is the authoritarian uh, drive versus libertarian, I'd like to say, but uh, it's certainly not represented by the Libertarian Party at this point. But that, that, uh, that principle of freedom of the individual, that is the real establishment versus anti-establishment. And people like to say Trump is some sort of outsider or some kind of maverick. He isn't. He's an authoritarian. He wants to centralize more power in the hands of the federal government to even tell corporations where they can or cannot do their business and all sorts of, you know, he wants to shred the First Amendment and all of these other things that he's come out and said, which has mass popular support because it's a populist uh, idea right now. Authoritarianism, unfortunately, generally is very popular. The problem isn't that we have this massive central government that's trying to dictate every aspect of our lives. It's that the wrong person is in charge of that government trying to dictate every aspect of our lives, which is a fool's game that is won by no one except the people at the top of that system. And the public falls for it every single time. I think the public does want, they want someone to tell them what to do, and that's unfortunate. None of us like to admit that, but it does seem to be human nature. We're looking for somebody to play the alpha male. And you and who will already give us orders, but we are looking for someone to play the alpha male who is going to do what's best for our particular tribe. And what we have is we have somebody up there who's playing the alpha male, all right, but he's working for the benefit of some other tribe. And I think that's part of the problem we have with the establishment. It is perceived that they're not working for the benefit of all the people in the tribe. We'll follow them. We may be a nation of followers or a race of followers, but we're, wait, we're expecting our leaders to do what's best for us, not what's best for some others, and that's what, we, that's what we hope for, but it's not what we've seen over the past, since World War II, really. Yes, yes, no, I, I hear you, and I yeah. think you're, you're right, I mean, the public really does have this continuing hunger and thirst for someone to tell them what to do, and 
All we need is a better person in charge of the whole system. Um, I, I, I like to think that gradually human beings are awakening to the principles of liberty and why it is better, in fact, not to have such a uh, ruler ruling over the people. But uh, it is a very, very, very slow process. And in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of authoritarians willing to step up to the plate and play on that fundamental human psychology. I think Trump and Clinton are just the latest round of this. And again, I think they're both ultimately on the same side in the sense that they are both authoritarians. They both want a powerful central government to tell people what to do. And uh, people, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, the American people are clamoring for socialism. It's just what type of socialism do they want? Do they want the, uh, the Hillary Clinton brand neocon type socialism? Or do they want the, uh, the Donald Trump brand, you know, nationalist socialism? Uh, either way, it's collectivism and socialism at the end of the day. It is. It's, it's a difficult situation to view. It's a difficult situation to admit. And it certainly does not inspire optimism. We used to think about the United States, for example, and I presume Canada, uh, as a country of individual, rugged individualists. And that's less and less true. Is that simply a perception? Is that capacity for rugged individualism still there? It's been blunted by welfare and unemployment, a safety net, the rest of that. Uh, has it been blunted, but it's still waiting to reemerge? Or have circumstances changed where it's no longer possible to be the rugged individualist? Well, it is increasingly difficult to be a rugged individualist in a society that is structured against that individualism. And I think you touch on it there where you say that the, the social safety net and all of these things that have come in as part of the New Deal society um, really has fundamentally changed the aspect, the way that people view what is possible. I think a few generations ago, the idea of government intervention in various forms of the economy would have been seen as as unprecedented, as uh, unnecessary, as as something potentially that, that we should be on guard against. But in this day and age, it is not a question of, you know, oh, no, the government's intervening. It's, oh, no, the government isn't, isn't intervening enough. Yeah. And that's unfortunately the, 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 the ultimate lesson, quote unquote, that was supposedly learned in the 2008 crisis is, you know, it was, it was a lack of government regulation. There wasn't enough government involved. And if only we had more government involved, then those bankers would have acted like angels and all of our, or at least the, the regulators would have acted like angels and protected us from the bankers, all of that type of thing. And that is really cemented into the public's mind to the point where it is difficult for the public to even imagine a different system. And I can attest to this because earlier this week, I tweeted out a video that I thought was extremely enlightening on the way that the government uh, solved, quote unquote, the healthcare crisis. Because a century ago, there was the problem of doctors not making enough money and anyone could become a doctor. And uh, doctors obviously were upset about this. They wanted it to be more of a rarefied uh, realm and uh, wanted to make more money. So the government stepped in and started regulating it. The uh, American Medical Association and others coming up with licensing standards. And then, of course, the, the various government interventions in creation of uh, uh, Medicare and uh, programs like that has greatly ramped up the cost of healthcare in the United States, as I'm sure you and all your listeners very much know about. Um, that has happened because of government intervention. So what do people do? They, they turn to the government to ask for 
more intervention. We need more programs. We need Obamacare. We need other ways of dealing with this problem that you've created. Rather than going back to the system that existed in the first place, which is to deregulate, delicense, um, make it a, a genuinely free market, and to have charitable associations and other types of um, uh, organizations that existed in a massive way before the government got involved in this business that don't exist to that extent today. And now, after tweeting that out, I got responses from people saying, oh, but it's, you know, capitalists that have ruined the healthcare market, uh, completely missing the point that, no, it used to function uh, quite well before the government got involved in it. it. In fact, if anything, doctors weren't making enough money. Now they're making well, government and healthcare insurance corporations and all of these people are skimming off the top, making all sorts of money off of this scam that they're playing. And people can't envision a society that's based on, uh, you know, workers associations, charitable um, uh, organizations, things like this, providing the type of healthcare that they used to. I think people are beginning to stop being able to understand how things can work without There's that the stick of government. I, it's not just where they stop being able to understand. You know, George Washington, I've seen one report that George Washington would have felt completely comfortable in the, in the, in the land of the pharaohs a um, thousand years earlier, two thousand years earlier. He would feel more comfortable there than he would today. We live in a society that has become so complex. I mean, I can remember when you used to be able to understand an automobile and, and rebuild an engine yourself if that's what you wanted to do. You have to go to college right now in order to take an ordinary engine apart and, and try to rebuild it. You have to have a background in economics and whatever. Do you think that frightens people and it predisposes them? Find me a leader. I can't understand what's going on right now. Will someone please tell me what to do? Yes. But here's the thing that most people don't get. There is a difference between leaders and rulers. Uh -huh. And in a free society, you would have leaders, and you would, in the large area, like areas that, of your life that you don't have direct experience over the time to, to get that experience, you would, uh, you would defer to the, the mechanics or the whatever, the economists maybe even. But it would be your choice over which leader you would put your faith in. In this system... Everyone elects a ruler who then, you know, governs the country, and that is a fundamentally different uh, way of looking at things, and it's an important distinction that most people don't quite grasp, I think. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. We suppose that our congressman represents us to government. I suppose that our congressman represents the government to us. <laughs> He's coming down and telling us everything's okay, don't we got it all under control. He's supposed to be doing, he's supposed to be working for our, on our behalf, he seems to be working on the government's behalf. Let's give folks a little contact information, James. We have about 30 seconds left. Please go to CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. You can find all of my work there. I have thousands of hours of audio and video media there for free download, and I suggest you take advantage of those archives because uh, who knows you know, what's coming down the line with Internet censorship and all of that. So download it all, and if you like it, please do subscribe to my website. It helps to make this work possible. Thank you, James. Always a pleasure, always interesting. Look forward to talking to you in two weeks. James Corbett from the Corbett Report. I'm Alfred Addisk, and this is Financial Survival. Melody and I will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank, the producer, and James Corbett. Bye-bye.
there never seems to be a single penny left for me. religious and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188 That's 800-375-4188 Protect yourself and your family. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. 
Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You are listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. And uh, it is Wednesday, August 17th, 2016, about eight minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. If that's when it is where you're at, we are, in fact, live. 800... And I sound distracted because I am trying to uh, fix a problem here that I should have noticed before I started, yet I didn't. So now I have to deal with it right now. Just talk amongst yourselves for a second. We should have this taken care of here in just a moment. All right, we'll see now. Okay, now we're back to it, and we're back on it. All right, the chat room, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You can go in there and, uh, well, participate in the show. Uh or just socialize in there, you know, someplace where people are mostly like-minded. Not entirely, but mostly like-minded. Probably more so than you'll find at work or at a family reunion. Uh, unless, you know, unless you're one of those people that are really blessed with a family that it, it does get it, that that does realize they need to prepare. But sadly, from what I hear, you know, not that many people have families like that. Uh, They mostly actually have the other kind of families that think you're a nut, think you should shut up, keep it to yourself, we're not interested in hearing what you say, I don't want to know what you know, shut the hell up, whatever. You know, so, you know, the chat room and uh, other places too, might give you a little relief from that. Unless, of course, you've decided to tell the family to stick it where the sun don't shine and, uh, you know, go off on your own. Uh, And and I know that sounds, you know, oh, who would do that? Well, uh, I did that. (laughs) You know, so, (laughs) I don't know. I'm sure other people have done that, too. And sometimes that's all you can do. I, I mean, really, folks. Look, I get the whole thing. Oh, family, we love family. Oh, blood's thicker than water. Oh, yada, 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 yada. Just remember, these are a bunch of people that you were born into. Okay, you didn't choose to be their friends. You didn't choose to be around them. And they didn't choose to be around you. But yet somehow, uh, somewhere, we've decided that, well, it doesn't matter. We're stuck with you. And I well, hey, guess what? I don't stick to that idea. Oh no, I'm not stuck with you, not at all. And and I don't think, well, you know, I mean, pe- people can feel any way they want about their family, regardless of how they feel about you or treat you or anything like that. But hey, you know, I mean, honestly, these are just people who happen to be born. You know, maybe in the same uh, litter as you or whatever. And uh, big deal. I mean, hey, 
you know, I don't know, maybe Charlie Manson had a brother or sister. Maybe Jeffrey Dahmer had a brother or sister. You think they uh, they still say, well, you know, he was a nice guy, he was my brother, I still love him, and blah, blah, blah. Are they saying, uh, well, he's a serial killer, and, uh, you know, he should be executed. What's the right answer there, folks? Because if if Chuckles is your brother, I mean, oh my, shouldn't you say, oh no, he was just misunderstood, he had a bad day, or whatever. Or should you say, no, he's a serial killer, he should be executed. Oh yeah, it doesn't change the fact he's my brother, but nevertheless, he should be executed because he's a serial killer. I don't know. Anyway... It's just something to think about because I know family problems is something that is rampant in the Patriot community. And I don't mean family problems as in marital problems or anything like that. I, well, who knows? Maybe those are too, but I mean problems with other parts of your family. And sometimes it's even your wife. You know, and that kind of stinks because... I'm presuming, you know, you you did actually choose your wife and it wasn't some arranged marriage of your first cousin or something, right? Unless you're Muslim, I mean, I get that's what your culture is. But uh, generally, people in the U.S. pick their spouses and that kind of stinks when, you know, you get somewhere and your spouse ain't there with you. But normally I'm talking about brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, cousins, you know, aunts, uncles, those, that family. You know, because they got their own lives going on and stuff, and you got your life going on, and you figure out, hey, man, there's something wrong, and then you try to tell them, and they, <laughs> they tell you, ooh, you're nuts. Really? We'll see. Oh, I don't even know where to start here, man. I was reading a thing. So now Laura Bush, as if I really care what Laura Bush has to say about anything, but Laura Bush now has basically, without mentioning Hillary Clinton's name, okay, said she supports Hillary Clinton. You want to know why? See, I don't really care who Bush or her idiot husband or her criminal father, who isn't even a Bush, but, I mean, I don't really care what they think or who they support or whatever. You know, and if there's anybody out there so lost that who they pick will have any bearing on what you decide, I'm sorry, you're an idiot. I, I mean, I, you're you're just pathetic, you need to get a life, man, and, and start thinking for yourself a little bit, because that's pathetic. Who the hell, who cares? I don't know these people. I don't care what they think, and I don't care who they support. Great. Support who you want. It's a free country. Now, I may ask my neighbor, hey, what do you, what do you think? I care a whole lot more about what my neighbor has to say about something than any of the Bush family. But I find that the reason really, really interesting, and I don't have it right in front of me, so I'm going to be paraphrasing so people can say, well, you're misquoted her, and I probably will, but 
I'm I'm close to what it is because I read the article and I know what she said. She said she wants somebody to be in the White House who is going to work for women in Afghanistan. That's right. What? Wait a minute. Are we electing... Did did some get by me here? Are are we having an election for the president of Afghanistan or something? Because I thought we were choosing the president of the United States of America. Well, I get that wrong. Laura Bush says she wants the next president to work for the women of Afghanistan. Hey, listen, girls. That ain't you if you're in the United States. How do you like that? Oh, look, she has a vagina. Well, I guess that's not good enough anymore. Because she's not going to be working for your vagina. She's going to be working for all the vaginas in Afghanistan. Because that's the 56th state, I guess. I, I mean, really, are you kidding me? What kind... I, I, look, okay, bad enough. That means Hillary Clinton. Now, wait a minute. Hang on here. That means Hillary Clinton? So Hillary Clinton is going to be working for the women in Afghanistan? Hey, girls, you know what? Look, I already know Hillary Clinton would execute every man on the planet if she had her way. Okay? Man-hating lesbian freak that she is. Cokehead drug addict. You know, I, I mean, really. So... I'm, I wouldn't be surprised so much that she's going to be working for only the women. But no, it's not only the women. It's only the women in Afghanistan. Look, you know what this is, folks? This is an absolute admission and clarification about what this election is about. And no, it's not about women in Afghanistan. It's about these stinking pieces of garbage called the Bushes and the Clintons and the rest of their scumbag cabal like Soros and all the rest are globalists. They don't care about America. They want to destroy America. And that means, because you know what America is, right? Yeah, it's Americans. So guess who has to die? Guess who has to just leave, huh? You. That's who. They are globalists. This is what they really believe, and this is, and they're not ashamed to say it. I want a president in the White House that's going to work for the women of Afghanistan. You know what? I don't really care about the women of Afghanistan or the men of Afghanistan or anybody from anywhere else, for that matter. You know what? You got problems? Then solve them yourself. Because you know what? The United States has its own problems. And nobody's rushing over here to help us. So screw the rest of the world. But nope. That's not the, uh, that's not the globalist way, man. 
And that is the clear distinction between this elect in, in this election. Now, I will do this little disclaimer because, you know, what Donald Trump has said sounds fine, but it's only words. He hasn't actually done anything yet. Okay? So I don't know if he's just full of crap and he'll be another Ronald Reagan who gives a good speech and his policy is totally different than what he talks about. Or not. I don't know. All I can go by is what he says. And what he talks about is shutting down the border, stopping this influx of refugees and illegal aliens, bringing back jobs to this country by getting out of these lousy, rotten, stinking trade deals. And they're really not trade deals. You see, if I go around and I make a deal, all right, look, uh, China's got tea and I want some. What do you want in return? You want Federal Reserve notes or do you want, you know, maybe you want wheat. Maybe you want corn. I don't know. Maybe you want wood. Maybe you, who knows what you want. What do you want? Let's make a deal. I want tea from China. You want something from me. Let's make a deal. That's a trade deal. And trade deals are, you know, okay, I got to get something. You got to get some. We both got to be happy with this or we're not having a deal. But what the, wait. What this NAFTA and World Trade Organization is, it's not a it's not a trade deal. Okay? It is a trading conglomerate. It's a trading authority. Put it that way. All right? It's like if uh you know, like uh I don't know, if you're a trucker, the ICC, like what that used to be. Department of Transportation, right? Okay, they run the way you do things on the road. Now, you can you got a little leeway. You can do a little of this. You can do a little of that. Okay. But overall, the rules about how you're going to conduct your business are their rules that you're going to follow. Okay, there's no deal. You didn't deal with them. They're telling you if you want to work in transportation, you're going to take your marching orders from the Department of Transportation. That's what the World Trade Organization is. That's what NAFTA is. These are not deals. Okay? Oh, they might have dealt with, well, what's going to be the rules? But there's no deal. There's just rules. Okay? So, you know, yeah, okay, let's get out of the bad deal. So, so everything I've heard out of Trump, and he's, of course he says things that, you know, I don't like, that I, prob- that I think, gee, you know, somebody really ought to put like a, I don't know, some sort of three-second button on this guy to where, you know, when he realized, but I don't think he ever realizes or cares, you know. And and you know what? Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing he doesn't care. I mean, he said a few stupid things. See, I don't want to say a lot because he hasn't said a lot of stupid things. He said a few stupid things, and they were stupid things. But 
You know, and he didn't apologize, and he doesn't care. Okay, fine. But he said a lot of other things that are not stupid, that are absolutely right. You know, the, the media has hammered him far more over the things he says that he's right about than the things he says that are stupid. Although, then again, maybe they say stupid, you know, they, they say so many stupid things, they might not even recognize stupid when they see it or hear it. They just think it's normal because that's all that ever comes out of the mainstream media's mouth is stupid. But that's the difference, at least on the surface, at least what we can see, at least the only thing we can go on is that Donald Trump is an American. That Donald Trump will do what he can, and don't get your hopes up, folks, will do what he can to make things better in America, rather than, oh, well, you know, we got to figure out, uh, uh, you know, what's going on in the rest of the world before we can figure out what we're doing, because, gee, uh, you know, what if our interests don't coincide with somebody else's interests and, uh, gee, they might not like it? Well, who the hell cares if they like it or not? Screw them. Take care of your own business. Oh, but it's not fair. America's too big and powerful. Tough luck. Too bad. I'm not 100% for anybody in this election because I don't trust any of them. I've been lied to too far too many times, folks. Okay, far too many times. Ron Paul was my last rodeo with, oh, oh, I believe in him. I believe in him. I don't believe in him at all. He was a liar, okay? Sure, Ron Paul's still out there and he's still spouting his Federal Reserve must go and all this other stuff. And he's absolutely right about the economy and all that. Even a broken clock's right twice a day. Okay? 30 years in Congress, he never even got a... Where's the bills to dismantle the the Fed? Where's the support? 30 years you couldn't get enough people to at least get this thing voted on? How about to get out of the U.N.? Or does he want to get out of the U.N.? You see, that's the thing about Ron Paul. He is an open border guy. Oh, sure, he changed his tune when he got running in the Republican race because nobody wanted to hear that crap. Just like nobody wants to hear that crap out of the Libertarian Party. Or Jill Stein. Nobody wants to hear that crap. We want the border shut. And it doesn't matter what you think about it. And what, oh, But, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. And we're supposed to be loving and kind. And we're Christians. Shut the hell up. This is a nation. We've got to have control of our borders. And from what it looks like to me, we're not much of a Christian nation anymore. And we weren't built by immigrants coming in here illegally, getting on welfare, sucking up free health care, sucking up free education, sucking up free welfare. That's not what built this country, but that's the immigrants we got coming in here now. All immigrants are not created equal, okay? That's like saying, well, you know, the bank was built on customers. Yeah, the bank was built on customers, so what if a guy walks in with a gun and says, give me all the money? 
well, you know, he's just an armed customer with a bad attitude. Yeah, sure. Or he's a bank robber. They're not the same, okay? That's the whole thing. They're not the same. He might have walked in the door and looked like all the other customers for a few seconds when he first came in the door. Oh, right before he pulled his gun and said, give me all the money. That's when he turned into a bank robber, not a customer anymore. They're not the same. Well, immigrants come in here following the rules, going by the whatever the whatever the law says they got to do to come into this country, they got to do. Then they can go get a job, they can, you know, start a family, they can do whatever. Okay, but at one point that immigrant actually crossed into the United States. Yeah, but an illegal alien, that's not the same. Well, for for a second, they're the same. Yeah, they both crossed in the United States. But really, an illegal alien and an, a, an immigrant to the United States is the same difference between a bank customer and a bank robber. Just because they both stood in the lobby for a few seconds doesn't make them the same. Anyway, you know, people are having a conversation in the chat room about a Christian nation does not tolerate the state usurping the authority of God. Well, then the United States has never been a Christian nation. Oh, maybe when it first started. But, uh, you know, uh, at least from the Civil War on, you think you, you the authority of God, do you really think God figures that, well, if you join a group... And then that group starts screwing you over that you can't leave that group. You're stuck with that group. And they can kill all of you to keep you in that group. Because that's what the United States government did to the southern states. The southern states said, look, we're tired of getting screwed over by your taxes and your trade policies. It had nothing to do with slavery when it started. Oh, there was some, you know, panty waists up north worried about slavery. But that wasn't what the government was worried about. That wasn't what the southern states were worried about. They were worried about exorbitant taxes and a terrible trade policy. That was putting the southern states at a disadvantage. So they decided, we're leaving. Well, the United States government decided, no, you're not. We'll have to kill you if you try to leave. Nobody leaves. Nobody leaves. So you're forcing me into this? And there's actual legal scumbags out there right this second that would argue that the Civil War proved that states do not have the right to leave the Union. Oh, really? And what if the South would have defeated the North? Would that have proved that they did? I guess it does. Might makes right, right? Anyway, uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. Everybody stay tuned.
shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
beautiful car. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still Wednesday, August 17, 2016, and it's about 8.40 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If that's when it is where you're at, we are live. Well, anyway, uh, let's see here. Oh, yes, go to the chat room, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Uh, 800-932-1980 is the call-in number, and there you have it. That's pretty much uh, all you need to know for right now. Anyway, well, I've got a uh, a little headline here that shouldn't really come as a big, I mean, shouldn't be coming as a surprise at all to any of you ABR listeners, because, I mean, I, I've reported on this. Oh, I don't know, a bunch of times, you know, especially the California thing where they just shredded a million Bernie ballots. But, you know, that's gone. That's out of the news. Nobody cares. Bernie's got a new house, and uh, nobody gives a damn. I mean, really, you know, they shredded a million Bernie Sanders ballots, filled out Bernie Sanders ballots in California. But the headline... Okay, and this is from Invest- Investment Watch, and and I'm only gonna get you the headline here because it's a headline for a video, and you know I don't I really don't watch videos that much, but Stanford University study confirms Hillary Clinton stole the election from Bernie Sanders. Yeah, but Bernie doesn't care. Bernie got a new half a million dollar house. And I mean another one. This is his third. You know, must be nice to be a rich communist, huh? I mean, is that his payoff? Really? Only six hundred grand for the trouble he had to go through? Wow. I think he, you know, he should maybe get more than that. All right. Now, here's something else that you know. This is really, I, I. I don't hate this woman as much as I do Hillary Clinton because she's German, and I really don't care about Germany either any more than I do about Iran or Libya or anywhere else. I don't care. Afghanistan, I don't care about Germany. They got their problems, and they, got, they better solve their problems. And one of their problems is Merkel. The problem I see is that I, the other day I saw a headline saying, uh, Hillary, America's Merkel. Oh, is that right? Well, that's not a good thing for America, folks. Here it is. And I'm not going to read the whole article to you because, again, I really don't care about Germany. If the German people are so darn stupid to keep this woman in power with her policies, just like Obama. I mean, she is like the German Obama. Listen to this. Chancellor Angela Merkel said on Wednesday, refugees had not brought terrorism to Germany, adding that Islam belonged in the country as long as it was practiced in a way that respected the Constitution. She is so full of crap, it's unbelievable. Tell all the raped girls... Oh, that wasn't a refugee problem. Yeah, but it was a refugee who raped me, 
Oh yeah, but that was that that you know that yeah, but that's not yeah, but that's not their fault or something. I don't know. More than a million people fleeing war and poverty in the Middle East. Wait a minute. Let's ask ourselves here, and why are more than a million people fleeing war and poverty in the Middle East? Why? Because the United States military keeps bombing them into the Stone Age. Why? Why, folks? Okay, let's repeat after the mainstream media. Well, it's because we have to get rid of that horrible, terrible dictator, Assad. Okay, has any journalist bothered to ask why? Wait a minute, why do we need to get rid of Assad or anybody else? Why do we even care who the president of Syria is? And if the president of Syria is such a big, bad threat, why don't we just nuke him? Oh, because he's not that big of a threat. He hasn't done anything. Okay, why did we bomb Libya into the Stone Age? Hmm? Again, there's no good answer. Oh, oh, there's the standard answer. Well, because uh, uh, they mistreat their own people. Oh, you mean like cops shooting their people in the back for trying to run away? You mean those kind of, are they doing that? How exactly are they mistreating the people? Wait a minute, you're mistreating the people here, too. Does that mean we should go to Washington, D.C. and bomb you into the Stone Age and kill your families while they're at weddings and funerals? I think it probably does mean that we should do that. Because, you know, hey, violence obviously works, right? Yeah, millions are fleeing the Middle East. Uh, Why is that? You're creating a situation and going, oh my, look at all these poor people. Well, everybody, you're going to have to make room in your bedroom. Uh, better yet, make room in your 11-year-old's bedroom for, uh, you know, uh, Assad here. He's your new husband. Yeah, we're hoping he'll learn, you know, German here someday. Really? Anyway, it's it just for her to say something like that is un I mean it's like what? What? Really? You kidding me? And nobody's tried to kill her yet? What the hell is wrong with you people in Germany? But then again, you know what? As an American, I don't have much to talk about because Obama's done that and more. Okay? He does that more every single day he says things like this. He's a lying sack of crap, but, you know, nobody's put a bullet in his forehead yet either. And I have to say, I'm sorry that nobody has. Oh, that doesn't mean I'm calling for somebody to go do that. I'm just saying, in my opinion, I wish he was dead. And he could take that witch with him, Hillary Clinton. There's going to come a time, folks, when all this, you know, kidding around and opinions and all that stuff are going to have to go to the side and people are going to have to start taking matters into their own hands. I mean, you've heard other hosts today mention that, hey, you know what, the only way to take this country back is going to be by violence.
But we're not getting this country back by violence. Oh, you might be able to secure an enclave where you live, you, you know, your city, your state, maybe even a region. But America is toast. If we have a revolution or a civil war, what was the United States of America will not be again when it's over. When the dust clears, the United States of America that you grew up in will be gone. So we're not taking this country back by violence. No. See, that's a little too lofty of an idea. You're going to have to protect your family, and if you intend to survive, it's going to take an amazing amount of violence on your part to accomplish that. That's where we're at. Forget your big ideas about taking back America. You better start thinking about staying alive and keeping your family alive. Not a real rosy picture, but... Hey, there is some good news here. It's not really great news, but it's some news. Donald Trump's got a campaign shakeup going on. You know, and, and I don't know what goes on inside their campaign, but it, it appears that Donald Trump is sick of getting advised by these insiders that he hired because they're the experts to calm down. Stop being so belligerent. Okay? Show some more restraint. Well, uh, let's see. The changes in effect are demoting Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman who has been urging Trump to show more restraint and promote pollster Kellyanne Conway to the position of campaign manager. But the real bombshell came with the recruitment of Steve Bannon, an executive with the conservative news organization Breitbart, as the campaign's CEO. Breitbart has uh, been synonymous with attacks on the GP, GOP leadership, especially in recent weeks and months, a particular foe, Speaker Paul Rhino. Well... If that doesn't make you like Breitbart more, I don't know what will, because Paul Rhino is almost, nah, he is as bad as Hillary Clinton. You know what makes him as bad as Hillary Clinton? No, I don't think he's as much a globalist or a man-hater or an American hater as Hillary Clinton. And I mean as much. He, he certainly is, but not as much. But you know what what sets him apart and brings him up even with her? Hillary Clinton will at least stand up there and say, I'm a Democrat, and here's my communist ideas. Paul Rhino is a little lion weasel who gets up there and talks like he's a conservative, but then when he goes votes and makes deals behind closed doors... He's pushing the same communist agenda that Hillary Clinton is. So, this is, uh, is going to be interesting, perhaps. 
you know, uh, Washington, they're looking at it like, oh, boy, Donald Trump is going to start attacking the GOP and the Democrats. And why wouldn't he attack the GOP? Do you realize how many times the GOP has broken their deal with that man? Oh, hey, you got to sign a, uh, you're going to have to sign. Oh, but it's okay, because we're all going to sign a pledge that says, uh, you know, you will support whoever the Republican nominee ends up being. Now, they did this because they were afraid Donald Trump might just pull out of the GOP and run a third-party campaign. Well, it turns out Donald Trump won the nomination, and now lying little snakes, little weasels like Paul Rhino, they refuse to fulfill their pledge. I don't care if you like Donald Trump or not, you little weasel liar. You made a pledge. How can you people in Wisconsin vote for this guy who can't even, won't even abide by his pledge? And there's others, too. Weasels. And that should never, they should never be allowed to speak in public again without being interrupted and saying, what about your pledge, you lying little sack of crap? So a pledge doesn't mean anything to you? Why should I believe a friggin' word you say? You're a liar. And that's what should happen to them every single time they open their stinking cesspool sewer mouth in public. Well, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking in here. Somebody says the uh, mainstream media are hammering all the non-globalists by saying things against Trump 24/7. Yep, that's true. That's true. Well, okay, I don't have that much time for this, but you know, you probably heard all this and and you know, these are just some little tidbit details about it, but the leaked Soros memo you know, I, I don't know why this man has not been executed. No, I honestly, and I mean sanctioned by some government. I guarantee you, if I was the leader of some two-bit African nation or something, or South American cesspool, I'd have this man killed. Oh, I would have him officially, governmentally sanctioned. Oh, absolutely. There'd be no more George Soros. You know, and why would it have to be some two-bit dictator from somewhere? Well, because the United States government is obviously supporting this man. He's not even gotten any charges against him. And look at this. Leaked Soros memo, refugees crisis, new normal. The new normal. Oh, I see. Gives new opportunities for global influence. Oh, how nice. A leaked memo from left-wing financier George Soros' Open Society Foundations argues that Europe's refugee crisis should, should be accepted as a new normal and that the refugee crisis means new opportunities for Soros' organization to influence immigration policies on a global scale. You know, I really do hope that Donald Trump at least does slam shut the border. 
and does in fact deport most of these Muslim refugees and Mexican illegal aliens. I really do hope he does that and build a wall, put the military on the southern border. I mean, I hope he does all that, but we'll see. You know, I mean, really, I, I'm, I'm not really encouraged. I mean, it all sounds good and nice, but, you know, we'll have to see. But, you know what? Uh, my support of Donald Trump may not be 100%. It may not be really great. It might not be all that. But you know what? He's not Hillary Clinton, and that's really all that matters. Okay? He is not her. And that's just going to have to be good enough for this election, folks. You might not like it. I don't like it. But you, you know what? Time to take the medicine. We got into this situation because everybody in this country sat on their ass decade after decade after decade, and now we're in the crap, okay? And now our election comes down to one thing. Are you for America, or are you for a globalist government? That's it. That's what it comes down to. None of the other issues matter, because you know what? If we have a global government, well, the other issues are just going to get worse. Soros Group brags about propaganda to brand police as racist. The Open Society Foundation, through its Zen Fund, has bragged about being the only group to fund reports and advocacy. And yeah, reports to fund reports. You getting that? That's like a study, folks. That's like a poll, okay? You don't those don't just happen. People buy those, all right? They fund reports and advocacy accusing European police of discrimination towards minority groups. A document entitled OSIFE, Justice Initiative Portfolio Review, Ethnic Profiling in Europe, shows a coordinated effort to fund reports and advocacy to accuse European police of discriminatory behavior. This follows revelations in the United States that Mr. Soros and his foundation have been actively funding groups who are aggressive towards police, accusing them of discriminatory behavior toward minorities. Soros chairs a firm running online voting in Utah and across the U.S. Smartmatic Group, an electronic voting firm whose worldwide headquarters located in the United Kingdom, will be running the online balloting process in the Utah Republican Open Caucuses on Tuesday. Now, when was this written? Today. Investment bankster terrorism hacked Soros memo 650000 in cash to Black Lives Matter for motels, meals, and bullets. It's time to arrest Soros for fomenting violent revolution. You think? Gee, do you think it's time yet to arrest Soros? No, I think we're past that time to arrest Soros. And he, he needs to be hunted down and exterminated like the vermin he is. That's what needs to happen to George Soros. No, the time to have him arrested was about 20 years ago. No, he needs to be sanctioned now is what needs to happen to him. I'm sorry, folks, but no... George Soros doesn't get a fair trial. He's had his chance. Because you know what? 
You try to give a guy like that a fair trial, you know what he'll end up doing? He'll end up bribing the jury, paying off the judge, buying the courthouse for crying out loud. He needs to be exterminated, and along with his little son, too, and his whole family. They all need to be exterminated. Because they really, truly are parasites, vermin, feeding off the good people of this planet. That's what the Soros are all about. Anyway, I gotta go. I'll be back again tomorrow. Political, religious, and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. And I still, to this day, counsel, don't see anything wrong with taking the Ayatollah's money and sending it to support the Nicaraguan freedom fighters. They have basically said to the entire United States, we don't care what the people say, we don't care what the Congress says, we don't care what the other oversight organizations say, we're going to find some way to rid the planet of communism and we don't care who gets killed in the process. As long as there is breath in this body, I will speak and work, strive and struggle for the cause of the Nicaraguan freedom fighters. Freedom fighters, they are not. They are terrorists. Wait a minute. This isn't the way the Constitution was set up. This isn't what the Founding Fathers intended. We start out breaking foreign laws, since most countries have laws against secretly overthrowing their governments, and then you end up breaking the law at home. Sometimes you have to go above the written law. They were willing to literally put the Constitution at risk uh, because they believed somehow there was a higher order of things. We have liberty, and the only way we're going to keep liberty is to have people who are strong, like Reagan and North. Violence is not the answer. Uh, you don't teach the democratic way by shoving an M-16 down somebody's throat. If we continue these policies to rob ourselves in order to feed this national security monster, we are going to continue to degrade American life. We're only talking about subverting the Constitution, that's all. During this 200th anniversary of our Constitution, Americans are debating the document's meaning. It's a debate about war and peace, freedom and justice, and it's heard from the Capitol down to Main Street, and in this song by pop singer Jackson Brown. I've been waiting for something to happen.
What Jackson Brown sings about is history, past and present. I'm Bill Moyers, and in this personal essay, we'll look at that government in the shadows. Next week, Congress will publish a report on the Iran-Contra scandal. My colleagues and I have been investigating it ourselves. In this broadcast, we'll look at what we learned about the secret government in the hearings this summer, the wars and tragedies that have been a part of it for 40 years, and where it will take us if we, the people, let it. like to think of their government. Its values are enshrined in beautiful monuments and noble inscriptions, the temples of our national faith. But for 40 years, a secret government has been growing behind these stately tributes to American ideals, growing like a cancer on the Constitution. It's what people were talking about this summer. They were talking about the abuse of secret power, a breach of faith. Not everybody tells the truth. Not everybody thinks the public is entitled to know the truth. And uh, not everybody thinks they should go by the law. But I don't think we'll ever know the truth about what really happened. I mean, I feel like there's still lies out there, and we still don't know. The thing I started thinking was, this must happen all the time. This time they just got caught. People lined up early every day, waiting to listen in person to the Iran-Contra hearings while millions watched from home on television. Members of the secret government had been forced from the shadows into the spotlight. I will tell you right now, counsel, and all the members here get that I misled the Congress. I missed at that meeting. At that meeting. Face to face. Face to face. You made false statements to them about your activities in support of the Contras. I did. Oliver North had been the secret government's chronic liar, long on zeal for his president and the cause. But he was not the only zealot, not the only one to deceive. The hearings revealed a wholesale policy of secrecy shrouded in lies, of passion cloaked in fiction and deception. But the hearings told only part of the story. So let's begin on day one. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will... President Reagan came to office promising to restore America's military and moral prestige in the world. Voters had responded when he pledged to be tough on terrorists, a vow he repeated time and again. Let me further make it plain to the assassins in Beirut and their accomplices, wherever they may be, that America will never make concessions to terrorists. That's what the president kept saying. But it's not what he was doing. No pressure. The story broke one year ago, on November 3rd, 1986, in a magazine in Lebanon. The United States had defied its own embargo on arms to Iran. Ronald Reagan was offering weapons to the Ayatollah Khomeini in return for the release of American hostages. The president went on television to deny it. A charge has been made that the United States has shipped weapons to Iran as ransom payment for the release of American hostages in Lebanon. That the United States undercut its allies and secretly violated American policy against trafficking with terrorists. Those charges are utterly false. The president the was not telling not the truth. And when he held a news conference the next week, 
the pattern of deception continued. Mr. President, I don't think it's still clear just what Israel's role was in this. Could you explain what the Israeli role was here? No, because we, as I say, have had nothing to do with other countries or their shipment of arms or doing what they're, they're doing. That wasn't the truth either. Half an hour later, the White House press office corrected the president. Israel had been a key player in the sale of arms to Iran. Rapidly now, the web of secrets was unraveling. On November 25th, the president's old friend and ally, Attorney General Edwin Meese, revealed the deepest secret of all. Certain monies which were received in the transaction between representatives of Israel and representatives of Iran were uh, taken and made available to the forces in Central America which are opposing the Sandinista government there. The Constitution is ambiguous on many things, but not on this. The President, quote, shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Yet President Reagan himself approved selling arms to Iran. And as for the illegal diversion of funds to the Contras, well, the President's National Security Advisor said the decision had been his. I made a very deliberate decision not to ask the President so that I could insulate him from the decision and provide some future deniability for the President if it ever leaked out. But there was no denying that the President's men knew what was in the President's mind. And he had been very adamant at the time that he says, look, I don't want to pull out our support for the Contras for any reason. This, this would be an unacceptable option. Isn't there something that I could do unilaterally? Unilaterally. In other words, without that, congressional approval. Ronald Reagan's message was clear. Find some way, any way, to help the Contras. So I guess in a way they are counter-revolutionary and God bless them for being that way. And I guess that makes them Contras and so it makes me a Contra too. The Contras. Ronald Reagan compared them to our founding fathers. In reality, Ronald Reagan and CIA Director William Casey were their founding fathers. Two months after his inauguration, the President approved the funds which Casey used to create the Contras. Their ultimate was the violent overthrow of the Nicaraguan government, a government the United States legally recognizes. So the war had to be carried out covertly as a campaign of terror. But Americans were outraged when CIA agents mined the Nicaraguan harbors and blew up fuel tanks, causing thousands of Nicaraguan citizens to flee their homes. Congress, in protest, cut off the Contra funds. In when the president refused to give up on his creation, the Contras cheered. Viva Reagan! Viva Reagan! But how to keep the Contra war going despite Congress, the law, and public opinion? First, a small cabal in the White House took charge of policy. The President, CIA Director Casey, National Security Advisors McFarlane and Porndexter, and their aide, Colonel North, who did not wear his Marine uniform when he worked for the secret government. To raise money for the Contras, the secret team turned to right-wing governments that could do favors for the United States and receive favors in return. The King of Saudi Arabia doled out a million dollars a month. The Sultan of Brunei coughed up $10 million that was misplaced through a White House era. The secret government also encouraged the fundraising efforts of General John Singlab, 
Relieved of his command for insubordination in 1977, he now runs the World Anti-Communist League. Here at home, wealthy right-wingers were solicited directly by Oliver North. Some of them were told their contributions would get them invited to the Oval Office. Conservative activist Carl Channel, who later pleaded guilty to conspiracy to defraud the government, worked directly with Colonel North, pumping donors like investor Joseph O'Boyle. I take it your encounters involved, invariably involved, both Mr. Channel and Colonel North. And maybe Channel took you to North, and then you met with North, and then subsequently you would meet with Channel. But in a sense, they worked as a team. In a sense, yes. Uh, Mrs. Garwood, is that true in your instance as well? I would say that's a fairly accurate description. All this was being done to advance the president's policies, but it wasn't enough. To get around the law, the White House then enlisted the services of something called the Enterprise. The Enterprise is, is the uh, group of, of companies that uh, Mr. Hakim formed to manage the uh, Contra and the Iranian project. Who controls the Enterprise? I exercised overall control. General Richard Secord has been in and out of covert operations for a quarter century. One of the first Americans to fly secret missions in Vietnam, he also helped run the CIA secret war in Laos. Secord became a major Pentagon figure in foreign military sales, especially to the Shah of Iran. That's where he met this man, Albert Hakim. Not only was I presented with an opportunity to help my country, the United States, and my native land, Iran, but at the same time, I had the opportunity to profit financially. Albert Hakim was Secord's partner in the enterprise. Born in Iran, he made millions selling American-made arms to the Shah, often relying on bribes and illegal payoffs to ease the way. Now he handled financial matters for the enterprise. Like any good business, the enterprise was designed to make money. Am I correct, Mr. Secord, that from December 1984 until July 1985, you were engaged in selling arms to the countries for profit? That's correct. Then, at the direct request of the secret White House team, the Enterprise brokered American arms to the Ayatollah Khomeini. Beyond Secord and Hakim, it grew to include a shadowy network of arms dealers, fraudulent companies, and secret bank accounts. The enterprise was, as Senator Daniel Inouye put it, a shadowy government with its own air force, its own navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue its own ideas of the national interest, free from all checks and balances, and free from the law itself. Here's just one example of how the Enterprise worked. With the full knowledge of William Casey and Oliver North, Secord and Hakim controlled secret bank accounts in Switzerland that received those contributions from private citizens. The money was then funneled to the Contras. One donor was Joseph Coors, the millionaire beer tycoon. Coors met directly with Casey, who referred him to North. 
I told him that I was interested in, um, uh, in seeing what I could do, and I asked him for his recommendation. And did North, uh, subsequent to the meeting, provide you the Swiss bank account name and number to which your payment should be made? Yes, he did. And what was Joseph Coors deposited $65,000 into the secret account, but that was peanuts compared to the arms deals. Secord purchased a thousand missiles from the CIA for $3.7 million and sold them to an Iranian middleman for $10 million. On that one transaction alone, after expenses, the enterprise made a profit of $5.5 million, almost 200%. Its overall profits on the sales to Iran may have been as much as $15 million. You did, in fact, use some of those proceeds, approximately, and correct me if my recollection is wrong, about $3.5 million for the Contra effort in Central America. Yes, sir. That was but most of the money never reached the Contras, including $8 million remaining today in a private Swiss account. Operating in secret, the enterprise was free to put profits above patriotism. They even sold arms directly to the Contras at a huge markup. If the purpose of the enterprise was to help the Contras, why did you charge Calero a markup that included a profit? We were in business to make a living, Senator. We had to make, we had to make a living. I didn't see anything wrong with it at the time. It was a commercial enterprise. Well, I thought the purpose of the enterprise was to, was to aid Calero's cause. Can't I have two purposes? I did. While profits were being made, lives were being lost. Iran has used missiles supplied by the Enterprise to fight its war against Iraq. That war has already lasted more than seven years, as many as a million people killed or wounded. And in Nicaragua, the Contras use weapons from the Enterprise against civilians. It's a terrorist war they're fighting. Old men, women, children are caught in the middle, are killed deliberately, as the Contras use violence against peasants to pressure their government. Thousands have died. Even as the hearings were taking place in Washington this summer, a Contra raid in Nicaragua killed three children and a pregnant woman. As the casualties mounted, the secret government in Washington knew that the Contra leaders were not such noble freedom fighters after all. Colonel North learned that from his own liaison with the Contras, Robert Owen. I was but a private foot soldier who believed in the cause of the Nicaraguan democratic resistance. Owen sent a secret memo to his boss. He reminded North that the chief Contra leader, Adolfo Calero, is a creation of the United States government. And he warned North that those around Calero, quote, are not first-rate people. They're liars. Greed and power motivated. This war, he said, has become a business to many of them. Owen's judgment has been supported by disillusioned rebels who quit the struggle in disgust with Contra leaders. People who had never dirtied their boots, people who never went to the field, people who didn't even know how to pick up a rifle, pretending being a facade for the CIA, and whose only concern was making money. Alberto Sewer is a former Contra officer who once won the personal congratulations of Ronald Reagan, but then he discovered corruption among the Contras. They bought shoddy goods and put them at a hike of prices. They bought low-grade grains like rice and beans and corn and sugar and salt and put them up uh, for sale or build them for themselves at the highest prices. Uh, they did the same with ammunitions. They did the same with rifles. All this 
the contempt for Congress, the defiance of law, the huge markups and profits, the secret bank accounts, the shady characters, the shakedown of foreign governments, the complicity in death and destruction. They did all this in the dark because it would never stand the light of day. Secrecy is the freedom zealots dream of. No watchman to check the door, no accountant to check the books, no judge to check the law. The secret government has no constitution. The rules it follows are the rules it makes up. So William Casey could dream that the enterprise might take on a life of its own, permanent and wholly unaccountable. The director was interested in the ability to go to an existing, as he put it, off-the-shelf, self-sustaining, stand-alone entity that could perform certain activities on behalf of the United States. Are you not shocked that the director of Central Intelligence is proposing to you the creation of a organization to do these kinds of things outside of his own organization? Counsel, I can tell you I'm not shocked. They were willing to literally put the Constitution at risk uh, because they believed somehow there was a higher order of things, that the ends do in fact justify, are justified by the means. That's the most Marxist totalitarian doctrine I've ever heard of in my life. Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts, a veteran of the Vietnam War, is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. If you can have a retired general and a colonel, you know, in uh, Mukti running around, uh, making deals in other countries on their own, uh, soliciting funds to wage wars to overthrow governments, and hide it from the American people so you have no accountability, you've done the very thing that uh, uh, James Madison and others feared most when they were struggling to put the Constitution together, which was to create an accountable system which didn't have runaway power, which didn't concentrate power in one hand so that you could have uh, one person making a decision and running off against the will of the American people. What could possibly justify it? The fight against communism, of course. This nation cannot abide the communization of Central America. We cannot have Soviet bases on the mainland of this hemisphere. And what it means dirty wars and dirty tricks, lying in deceit. These operations were designed to be secrets from the American people. Mr. Niels, I'm at a loss as to how we could announce it to the American people and not have the Soviets know about it. Well, in fact, Colonel North, you believe that the Soviets were aware of our sale of arms to Iran, weren't you? <laughs> we came to a point in time when we were concerned about that. Since our adversaries know about covert operations, the only people fooled are the American people. But consent is the very heart of our constitutional system. How can people judge what they do not know, or what they are told falsely? It's something troubling Americans these days. All the neighborhoods around here who get to talking about politics, they all talk, they used to talk about bureaucrats. You know, they used to talk just about politicians, they're kind of slick people, just like used car salesmen or what else have you. Lawyers get thrown into that whole pack too. Now we're talking about the liars. That's what I hear all the time. Well, the liars are at it again, you know. We do live in a democracy, don't we? We do, sir. Thank in, God. In which it is the people, not one Marine Lieutenant Colonel, that get to decide the important policy decisions for the nation.
Yes. It isn't the first time that men who express reverence for democracy in public have violated the values of democracy in practice. The secret government is an interlocking network of official functionaries, spies, mercenaries, ex-generals, profiteers, and super patriots who for a variety of motives operate outside the legitimate institutions of government. Presidents have turned to them when they can't win the support of the Congress or the people, creating that unsupervised power so feared by the framers of our Constitution. Just imagine that William Casey's dream came true. Suppose the enterprise grew into a super-secret, self-financing, self-perpetuating organization. Suppose they decided on their own to assassinate Gorbachev or the leader of white South Africa. Could a president control them? And what if he became the enterprise's public enemy number one? Who would know? Who would say no? During the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, Lenin created something called the Cheka, a secret organization run by eight lieutenants reporting directly to him and filled with zealots who sabotaged and terrorized opponents. They made up their own rules, they chose their own missions, and they judged their own operations. You say it can't happen here. Well, before deciding for sure, let's look at the history of our secret government. was over. Europe lay devastated. The United States emerged as the most powerful nation on earth. But from the rubble rose a strange new world, a peace that was not peace and a war that was not war. We saw it emerging when the Soviets occupied Eastern Europe. The Cold War had begun. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. The Russians had been our ally against the Nazis, an expedient alliance for the sake of war. Now they were our enemy. To fight them, we turned to some of the very men who had inflicted on humanity the horrors of Hitler's madness. We hired Nazis as American spies. We struck a secret bargain with the devil. One that I know real well is Klaus Barbie. He was wanted by the French as their number one war criminal. And somehow we employed a man like that as a very secretive informant. Earhart Dabringhaus was employed in the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps and assigned to work with Nazi informants spying on the Russians. One of them was Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon, who had tortured and murdered thousands of Jews and resistance fighters. During the time I learned that Barbie was really such a brutal murderer, I reported this to my headquarters and I thought I was going to get a promotion. I thought there was a big picture of a deal I had here, you know. And the answer was, uh, Dabringhaus, keep quiet until he's no longer useful, then we'll turn him over the French. Under those conditions, I thought, well, okay, let's work with him. You know, if you're an intelligence officer, you work with the devil. The Americans did not turn Barbie over to the French when they finished with him. They helped him escape to Bolivia. Other top Nazis were smuggled into the United States to cooperate in the war against the new enemy. Dabringhaus still remembers the attitude of his superiors. The new enemy was the only enemy. They seem to have had a preconceived program of what the communists are up to. 
And if I send in the report that uh, there was a Nazi war criminal running around over there, forget it. We're not interested in the Nazis anymore. We're concentrating on the communists. So began the morality of the Cold War. Anything goes. The struggle required a mentality of permanent war, a perpetual state of emergency. And it meant a vast new apparatus of power that radically transformed our government. Its foundations were laid when President Truman signed into law the National Security Act of 1947. Now that National Security Act of 1947 changed dramatically the direction of this great nation. It established the framework for a national security state. Admiral Jean LaRocque rose through the ranks from Ensign to become a strategic planner for the Pentagon and now heads the Center for Defense Information, a public interest group. The National Security Act of 47 gave us the National Security Council. Never have we had a National Security Council so concerned about the nation's security that we were always looking for threats and looking how to orchestrate our society to oppose those threats. National security was invented almost in 1947 and now it has become the prime mover of everything we do is measured against something we invented in 1947. The National Security Act also gave us the Central Intelligence Agency. This is the house the Cold War built, the CIA, the core of the new secret government. Its chief legitimate duty was to gather foreign intelligence for America's new role as a world power. Soon it was taking on covert operations abroad and at home. As its mission expanded, the CIA recruited adventuresome young men like Notre Dame's All-American, Ralph McGeehee. I look back to the individual that I was when I joined the agency. I was a dedicated cold warrior who felt the agency was out there fighting for liberty, justice, democracy, and religion around the world. And I believe wholeheartedly in this. Um, I, I just felt proud every day of work because I was out at the vanguard of the battle against the international uh, evil empire, international communist evil empire. Iran, 1953, the CIA mounted its first major covert operation to overthrow a foreign government. The target was the Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh. He held power legitimately through his country's parliamentary process, and he was popular. Washington had once looked to him as the man to prevent a communist takeover. But that was before Mossadegh decided that the Iranian state, not British companies, ought to own and control the oil within Iran's own borders. When he nationalized the British-run oil fields, Washington saw red. Kenneth Love was a young New York Times reporter in Tehran that summer. This was in McCarthy's time, and the whole Cold War paranoia was running wild in Washington. And everybody was saying that crazy old Mossadegh was falling under the influence of the communists. This was not true. He did not receive an iota of assistance from the Soviet Union. Mansur Fahong was a young student activist in Tehran and a Mossadegh supporter. He now lives in the United States as a teacher and a writer. In those days, in early 50s, the idea of an independent, neutral state was not at all acceptable to either the West, either the United States, or the Soviet Union. Mossadegh was the victim of this East-West rivalry. The Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, and his brother Alan, director of the CIA, decided with Eisenhower's approval to overthrow Mossadegh and reinstate the Shah of Iran. Kenneth Love recalls the work of one American agent named George Carroll. 
He was the one that paid the money to the street gangs. He was the one that invented the idea that make everybody identify himself as a Shah's partisan, so therefore the opposition will not be able to group in the streets. That was why everybody in a vehicle and anything else had to put a Shah's picture in the windshield and put the headlights on. And that you had to do or you would have your windshield clubbed in and be dragged out and beaten up and killed or whatever. The mobs paid by the CIA and the police and soldiers bribed by the CIA drove Mossadegh from office. Crown Prince Abdullah greets the Shah as he lands at Baghdad Airport after a seven-hour flight from Rome. The King of Kings was back in control and more pliable than Mossadegh. American oil companies took over almost half of Iran's production. U.S. arms merchants moved in with $18 billion of weapon sales over the next 20 years. But there were losers. Nearly everybody in Iran of any importance has had a brother or a mother or a sister or a son or a father tortured, jailed, uh, uh, deprived of property without due process. I mean, an absolutely buccaneering dictatorship in our name that we supported. SAVAK was created by the CIA. SAVAK, the Shah's secret police, tortured and murdered thousands of his opponents. General Richard Secord and Albert Hakim, whom we met earlier, were among those who helped supply the Shah's insatiable appetite for the technology of control. But the weapons and flattery heaped by America on the Shah blinded us to the growing opposition of his own people. They rose up in 1979 against him. Death to the Shah, they shouted. Death to the American Satan. Khomeini is a direct consequence, and the hostage crisis is a direct consequence, and the resurgence of the Shia is a direct consequence of the CIA's overthrow of Mossadegh in 1953. It's cited often as a, uh, a, a wonderful example of an efficient CIA accomplishing something good. In reality... Uh, Edwin Firmage is a professor of law, former White House fellow, and constitutional scholar. You create a nation uh, who hates you enormously, who views you as a devil, an evil force, uh, you create in that state sufficient forces of unrest that you don't have stability, uh, and those, those chickens come home to roost. You end up with a, a violation of the Constitution and uh, a hatred that is propagated today until you have embassies taken, hostages held, Hatred engendered. Hatred simply doesn't come to rest. Guatemala, 1954. Flushed with success, America's secret government decided another troublesome leader must go. This time it was Jacobo Arbenz, the democratically elected president of Guatemala. Philip Redinger was recruited from the Marines to join the CIA team. It was explained to me that this is very important for the security of the United States, that uh, we were going to prevent a Soviet beachhead in this hemisphere, which we have heard about very recently, of course, and that uh, the Guatemalan government was communist, and, uh, and we had to do something about it. President Arbenz had admired Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and his government voted often with the American position at the United Nations. But in trying to bring a new deal to Guatemala, Arbenz committed two sins in the eyes of the Eisenhower administration. First, when he opened the system to all political parties, he recognized the communists, too. Well, of course, there was no 
no even a hint of communism in his government. He had no communists in his cabinet. He did permit the existence of a very small communist party. Harbin's also embarked on a massive land reform program. Less than 3% of the landowners held more than 70% of the land. So Harbin's nationalized more than 1.5 million acres, including land owned by his own family, and turned it over to peasants. Much of that land belonged to the United Fruit Company, the giant American firm that was intent on keeping Guatemala quite literally a banana republic. United Fruit appealed to its close friends in Washington, including the Dulles brothers, who said that Arbenz was openly playing the communist game. He had to go. This was a sudden death for him. I mean, there was no chance of him winning this, this fight because of the fact that he had done this to the United Fruit Company, plus the fact that he was over, overthrowing the hegemony or hegemony of the United States over this area. And this was dangerous. It could not be tolerated. We couldn't tolerate it. From Honduras, the same country that today is the Contra staging base, the CIA launched a small band of mercenaries against Guatemala. They were easily turned back. So with its own planes and pilots, the CIA then bombed the capital. Arbenz fled and was immediately replaced by an American puppet, Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas. He overturned all of the reformist activity of President Arbenz. He, he uh, gave the land back to the United Fruit Company that had been confiscated. He took uh, land from the peasants and gave it back to the landowners. The CIA had called its covert action against Guatemala Operation Success. Military dictators ruled the country for the next 30 years. The United States provided them with weapons and trained their officers. The communists we saved them from would have been hard-pressed to do it better. Peasants were slaughtered. Political opponents were tortured. Suspected insurgents were shot, stabbed, burned alive, or strangled. There were so many deaths at one point that coroners complained they couldn't keep up with the workload. Operation success. What we did has caused a succession of repressive military dictatorships in that country and has been responsible for the death of over 100,000 of their citizens. Success breeds success, sometimes with dreary repetition. Mario Sandoval Alarcon began his career in the CIA's adventure in Guatemala. Today he's known as a godfather of the death squads. In 1981, after lobbying Ronald Reagan's advisors for military aid to Guatemala, Sandoval Alarcon danced at the inaugural ball. Richard Bissell, another veteran of the Guatemalan coup, went on to become the CIA's chief of covert operations. I looked him up several years ago for a CBS documentary. He talked about a secret report prepared for the White House in 1954 by a group of distinguished citizens headed by former President Herbert Hoover. Quote, it is now clear that we are facing an implacable enemy whose avowed objective is world domination. There are no rules in such a game. Hitherto accepted norms of human conduct do not apply. If the United States is to survive, long-standing American concepts of fair play must be reconsidered. We must learn to subvert, sabotage, and destroy our enemies by more clever, more sophisticated, more effective methods than those used against us. Was that the prevailing ethic? I think that's an excellent statement of, of the prevailing view, at least the view of, of those who had any contact uh, with covert operations uh, of one kind or another. 
In other words, the nature of the enemy is such that any tactics necessary are justified in order to thwart him and defeat him. I believe that was the view. It certainly was my view at the time. Cuba, 1961. Seven years after Operation Success in Guatemala, Bissell was planning another CIA covert operation. The assault has begun on the dictatorship of Fidel Castro. On April 17, 1961, Cuban exiles trained by the CIA at a base in friendly Guatemala landed on the southern coast of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs. The U.S. had promised air support, but President Kennedy canceled it. The invaders, left defenseless, surrendered. Seven months after the disastrous invasion, Kennedy delivered a major foreign policy address. We cannot, as a free nation, compete with our adversaries in tactics of terror, assassination, false promises, counterfeit mobs, and crises. The president was not telling the truth. Even as he spoke, his administration was planning a new covert war on Cuba. It would include some of the dirty tricks the president said we were above. The secret government was prepared for anything. At one time, the CIA organized a small department known as Executive Action, which was a permanent assassination capability. Well, it wasn't just an assassination capability. It was a capability to discredit or get rid of people. But it could have included assassination. And it did. There were at least eight documented attempts to kill Castro. He says there were two dozen. And there was even one effort to put LSD in his cigars. To help us get rid of the Cuban leader, our secret government turned to the Mafia, just as we once made use of Nazis. The gangsters included the Las Vegas mafioso John Rosselli, the Don of Chicago, Sam Giancana, and the boss of Tampa, Santo Traficante. I think we should not have involved ourselves with the, the Mafia. Uh, I think uh, an organization that does so is losing control of the security of its, of its information. But I think we should have been afraid that we would open ourselves to blackmail. If I read you correctly, you're saying it's the involvement with the Mafia that disturbed you and, and, and not the need for a decision to assassinate a foreign leader. Correct. It's a chilling thought, made more chilling by the assassination of John Kennedy. The accusations linger. In some minds, the suspicions persist of a dark, unsolved conspiracy behind his murder. You can dismiss them, as many of us do, but knowing now what our secret government planned for Castro, the possibility remains. Once we decide that anything goes, anything can come home to haunt us. The sad thing of the last few years is, both with regard to Central America, where our covert activities have included assassination manuals, as well as uh, what may have occurred in Libya with regard to a bombing raid uh, on Gaddafi, a person no American can sympathize with, is that the assassination issue has reared its head again as an extreme example of a covert kind of activity. Uh, my own sense is we make a great, great mistake and we endanger one person above anyone else, and that's the president, if we engage in assassination types of techniques, because no foreign government can defeat the United States Army, but a lot of foreign individuals can come up with ways of killing an individual American citizen. Vietnam, 1968. 
American soldiers are fighting and dying in the jungles of Southeast Asia. But the Vietnam War didn't start this way. It started secretly, off the books, like so many of these ventures that have ended disastrously. The CIA got there early, soon after the Vietnamese won their independence from the French in 1954. Eisenhower warned that the nations of Southeast Asia would fall like dominoes if the communists led by Ho Chi Minh took over all Vietnam. To hold the line, we installed in Saigon a puppet regime under No Dien Jim. American trained commandos were used to sabotage bus and rail lines and contaminate North Vietnam's oil supplies. Vice President Nixon brought moral support to Jim, but the situation kept getting worse. President Kennedy sent the Green Berets to Vietnam and turned to full-scale counterinsurgency. He had once said Vietnam was the ultimate test of our will to stem the tide of world communism. By the time of his death, there were 15,000 Americans there. They were called advisors. The secret war was leading only to deeper involvement and more deception. It is my duty to the American people to report that renewed hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have today required me to order the military forces of the United States to take action in reply. This president was not telling the truth either. The action in the Gulf of Tonkin was not unprovoked. South Vietnam had been conducting secret raids in the area against the North, and the American destroyer, ordered into the battle zone, had advance warning it could be attacked. But Johnson seized the incident to stampede Congress into passing the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. He then used it as a blank check for the massive buildup of American forces. You have always had presidents who, as an aberration, will act uh, on their own. And and then afterward look to Congress for authorization retrospectively of their act. But in this case, you had a full-dress defense of inherent presidential power, inherent executive power, and the power as commander-in-chief to use the Army and the Navy whatever way they wanted. The Constitution is clear on this, too. Congress shall have the power to declare war. April 1965, two battalions of Marines land in South Vietnam, the first of more than two and a half million Americans to fight there with no congressional declaration of war. The dirty little war that began in secret is reaching full roar. Free fire zones, defoliation, the massacre at My Lai, Napalm, and the CIA's Operation Phoenix to round up torture and kill suspected Viet Cong. We were murdering these people, incinerating them. Ralph McGee was there for the CIA and helped set up South Vietnam's secret police. My efforts had resulted in the deaths of many people. And I, I just, for me, it was a period when I, I guess I was, I consider myself nearly insane. I just couldn't reconcile what I had been and what I was at the time becoming. Uh, and it was so painful for me. It's just hard for me to uh, express it because I became completely antisocial. I couldn't deal with anybody. 
I, I just was dealing mentally. It was an internal battle. Every night I would lay in my bed and think, well, this can't be true. Why are we doing this? Why don't we stop? Why don't why can't we accept? And I was just a battle all night long, all day long. Every minute of the day I fought this battle over and over again. And it, and it to me, suicide became a long-for way out of this turmoil that I could see no other exit from. And finally, when I got over that, I wanted to jump off the agency's hotel, the Duke Hotel out there, and kill myself uh, and hang a banner, the CIA or the CIA lies or something like that, just to try to bring home, to have my death serve some purpose to make the American people realize that the truth they were being lied to. Many of the secret warriors in Southeast Asia had no such doubts or regrets. Some of the team that later joined the Iran-Contra enterprise helped to run the secret war in Laos. As General Richard Secord later put it, Laos belonged to the CIA. American planes blasted the communists in the jungle. And on the ground, we had our own secret army, the Hmong tribesmen. The Hmong fought the communists for 15 years, while our secret government made grandiose promises to them about the future. But we abandoned them to the communist path at Lao in 1975. One third of the mountain people died. Religious groups helped survivors to escape and brought some of them to Wausau, Wisconsin. I wouldn't be here if my father and my brothers were involved, you know, during this secret war. I am here because I have no choice of being here. I'd be, like I say, an example here right now, you know, 27 years after, you know, of a CIA, you know, goof up because they weren't willing to carry through their, you know, goals. They think that it was so simple that people are just like a pawn of a game, like a chess game, you know, that you can move them around anywhere you want. But you have to understand that human life is very different from, you know, playing with human life is different from playing a game. Because a game, you know, once you lose, there's nothing at stake. But when you lose a person's life, or devastate a whole country as they did to my country. And that is very important. Yeah. Please. During the hearings this summer, Oliver North repeated something we've heard often in the last 40 years from presidents and the president's men. I want you to know lying does not come easy to me. I want you to know that it doesn't come easy to anybody. But I think we all had to weigh in the balance the difference between lives and lies. But these memories suggest a different equation. The lives lost because we lied to ourselves and to others. Someone always pays for decisions made secretly in Washington. Looking at such pictures brings to mind the words of an old ally, a Vietnamese official who survived the fall of Saigon and escaped to America. Life and death issues for us, he says, were merely bargaining chips in the American pursuit of global policy. I played a minor role in the Kennedy administration and a much larger one for half the Johnson years. I saw the Peace Corps go forth one day and the Green Berets the next. 
Once I wrote a speech for LBJ which implied a striking coincidence between the president's wish and God's will. A wise older man from my past called to gently upbraid me. He reminded me that it's very important how we talk about God because there can be disastrous consequences to what we say. Just so, we've learned that presidents must be very careful talking about what they want this nation to do because the United States can unhinge whole countries simply by shifting our weight. We suffered then the passion of the time that America's defense and security were at stake in Vietnam. But our obsession was the real threat. Vietnam pushed the Cold War morality to its extreme conclusion, exorbitant means to accomplish limited ends. Anything goes. The wounds still run deep. There are 58,000 names on this wall. 58,000 men died in Vietnam. Their deaths and all the deaths in Southeast Asia, the names not on this wall, raise painful questions about our secret government and our role in the world. Were we certain what we ask people to die for? The men who wrote our Constitution tried to make it hard to go to war. Human life was at stake, they knew, and the character of our Republic. War should be soberly decided publicly debated and mutually determined by the people's representatives. It is the people, after all, who must fight, pay, and die once the choice is made. The Constitution was to protect them from dying for the wrong reasons. It was to protect them from killing for the wrong reasons. I don't know. The public still don't want to understand what the hell really happened. Maybe one day they will. That's where Central America. I see the same damn thing happening there in Central America that happened in Vietnam. Well, I think the country has learned uh, very graphically that we better be really assured that if we're going to send our young men and women off to die like this, that it better really be in the interest of every citizen of this United States to sacrifice somebody like that so that we don't have more blood on this wall or other walls. And I think that we ask a lot of questions now that we didn't used to ask. We want to know why. And we'll, we'll hear uh, Ollie North's uh, analysis of what's happening with the Contras, and a lot of us say we want some more verification of that. We want to know just what are we involving ourselves in when we go to do that. Looking back, it's stunning how easily the Cold War enticed us into surrendering popular control of government to the national security state. We've never come closer to bestowing absolute authority on the president. Setting up White House groups that secretly decide to fight dirty little wars is a direct assumption of the war powers expressly forbidden by the Constitution. Not since December 1941 has Congress declared war. Since then, we've had a police action in Korea, advisors in Vietnam, covert operations in Central America, peacekeeping in Lebanon, and low-intensity conflicts going on right now from Angola to Cambodia. We've turned the war powers of the United States over to where we're never really sure who, or what they're doing, or what it costs, or who is paying for it. The one thing we are sure of is that this largely secret global war, carried on with less and less accountability to democratic institutions, has become a way of life. And now we're faced with a question brand new in our history. Can we have the permanent warfare state and democracy too? A shellfish talk. In 1975, as the war in Vietnam came to an end, Congress took its first public look at the secret government. 
Senator Frank Church chaired the select committee to study government operations. The hearings opened the books on a string of lethal activities, from the use of electric pistols and poison pellets to mafia connections and drug experiments. And they gave us a detailed account of assassination plots against foreign leaders and the overthrowing of sovereign governments. Yes, it does. We learned, for example, how the Nixon administration had waged a covert war against the government of Chile's president, Salvador Allende, who was ultimately overthrown by a military coup and assassinated. Like Caesar peering into the colonies from distant Rome, Nixon said the choice of government by the Chileans was unacceptable to the President of the United States. The attitude in the White House seemed to be, if in the wake of Vietnam I can no longer send in, send in the Marines, then I will send in the CIA. But the secret government had also waged war on the American people. The hearings examined a long train of covert actions at home, from the bugging of Martin Luther King by the FBI under Kennedy and Johnson, to gross violations of the law and of civil liberties in the 1970s. They went under code names such as Chaos, Cable Splicer, Garden Plot, and Leprechaun. According to the hearings, the secret government had been given a license to reach all the way to every mailbox, every college campus, every telephone, and every home. We start out breaking foreign laws, since most countries have laws against secretly overthrowing their governments, and then you end up breaking the law at home and coming to feel a contempt for the law, for your colleagues and associates, for the Congress and the public, and for the Constitution. Morton Halperin worked for Henry Kissinger on the National Security Council in 1969. Critical of policies in Cambodia and Vietnam, he resigned. He later discovered his telephone had been bugged for 21 months. He is now the director of the Washington office of the American Civil Liberties Union. What you have is a growing gap between the perceptions inside the executive branch about what threats are to our national security and the beliefs in the Congress and the public about the threats to national security. And that leads to secrecy. That is what drives the policy underground. That's what leads the president to rely more on covert operations. And what leads the president and his officials to lie to the public and lie to the Congress about the operation, precisely because they cannot get their way in public debate, they are driven to seek to circumvent the democratic process. And the president ought not to be in a position, in my humble opinion, of having to go out and explain to the American people on a bi-weekly basis or any other kind that I, the president, am carrying out the following secret operations. It just can't be done. It is said that the constitutional system of checks and balances has so prohibited the president, so hamstrung him that he cannot effectively lead foreign policy, that he has to be resorting to clandestine, covert, secret. What's that? He needs to do that only when he wants to subvert Congress. If Congress says don't do that, and the president says, but I want to, I want to, I really want to, the conclusion from that isn't that the president is right. It is that the president is considering being an outlaw. It's been said that the secret realm of government is the deformed offspring of the modern presidency. Presidents take an oath to uphold the Constitution, but then they find the cumbersome sharing with Congress an obstacle and start looking for shortcuts to silence their critics and achieve their objectives. And it goes back to the beginning. I mean, there is a famous letter which uh, Madison wrote late in his life in which he said, 
Perhaps it is a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home will be charged to dangers real or imagined from abroad. And that is the lesson of history. Was the incentive well, so great or the prospect? But we don't seem to learn the lessons of history. Just 14 years ago, another Senate committee listened to another string of witnesses. The names still trip off the tongue. Alderman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency. And if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. The White House crimes known as Watergate. Cover would be taken off of the telephone, and two of the wires connected with this. Crimes against democracy. To harass opponents, the Nixon White House had set up a secret team called the Plumbers. They bugged phones, opened mail, and burglarized the president's critics. Senator Inouye read the Watergate committee a secret White House memo containing the Nixon enemies list and how the plumbers intended to punish them. Stated a bit more bluntly, how we can use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies. In both the Watergate and Iran-Contra hearings, there was contempt for Congress. I believe Congress set up the FBI to determine what was going on in this country, didn't it? Among other things, Mr. Chairman. It set up the CIA to determine what was going on in respect to foreign intelligence, didn't it? Yes, sir. And a number of others. But it didn't set up the plumbers. Of course, the Congress doesn't do everything, Mr. No, Chairman. Congress is the only one that's got legislative power, and I don't know anything, any law that gave the president the power to set himself up what some people have called a secret police, namely the plumbers. What was the reason to withhold information from Congress when they inquired about it? I simply didn't want any outside interference. Now, the outside interference you're talking about was Congress. And I take it the reason they were inquiring was precisely so that they could fulfill with information their constitutional function to pass legislation one way or the other. Isn't that true? Uh, yes, I suppose that's true. And that you regarded as outside interference. Is it even the king of there was contempt for the law. If the president could authorize a covert break-in, and you don't know exactly where that power would be limited, you don't think it could include murder or other crimes beyond covert break-ins, do you? Oh, I don't, I don't know where the line is, Senator. During your discussions with Mr. Casey, Mr. McFarland, and Mr. Poindexter about the plan, did a question ever arise among you as to whether what was being proposed was legal? Oh, no. I don't think it was. I mean, first of all, we operated from the premise that everything we did do was legal. Well, I'll go back to the... And there was contempt for the truth. Minister Mitchell, do you draw a distinction between not volunteering and lying? Well, it depends entirely on the subject matter. When well, you ask the direct question and you don't volunteer the direct answer, you might say you're not volunteering, but actually uh, you're lying on those. Well, I think we'd have to find out what the specifics are of what particular occasion and what case. Could you explain to me the difference that you think there is between knowing that you've left a false, a false impression or a wrong impression and lying, to use an old-fashioned term? Yeah, I think lying, we, we really mean uh, 
I mean a deliberate effort to mislead people, uh, uh, to a deliberate effort to leave them with a misleading impression. What I hoped to do was to avoid the question and duck the question as I... President Reagan's men did learn one thing from Watergate. Richard Nixon said it only last year. Just destroy all the tapes. Where are these memoranda? Which memoranda? The memoranda that you sent up to Admiral Poindexter seeking the president's approval. But I think I shredded most of that. Did I, did I get them all? I, I'm not trying to be flippant, I'm just... Well, that was going to be my very next question, Colonel North. Isn't it true that you shredded them? I, I believe I did. Do you think that what we've seen of the secret sale of arms to Iran and the private war in Nicaragua is on a par with what we saw at Watergate? Oh, the, the substance of it is far above Watergate. You have the sale of armaments to terrorist groups, which can only foment more kidnapping and more terror and, and, and finance it. You have the doing of this by members of the armed forces, a very scary thing. Uh, you have the government, at part in least, put in motion doing things that Congress has forbidden, direct illegality. You have constitutional abuses that are enormous. Watergate did drive Richard Nixon from office. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. The imperial presidency was down, but not out. Ronald Reagan ran in 1980 with a strong and clear message. The world was a hostile place and closing in on America. Russian troops were in Afghanistan, Sandinistas were in Nicaragua, and Americans were being held in Iran. President Reagan wanted to reinvigorate the CIA, and he chose a tough director to run it, his campaign manager, William Casey. They were ideological soulmates, true cold warriors on the offensive. In seven years, Ronald Reagan approved over 50 major covert operations, more than any president since John F. Kennedy. Reagan and Casey set the agenda, but it was this man's job to carry it out. In Oliver North, they had their 007. North's primary mission was to keep the Contra war going, despite the congressional ban on aid. For two years, he masterminded a privately funded airlift to Honduras. According to some reports, criminal elements used the secret airlift to smuggle drugs back into the United States, with profits being used to buy more weapons for the Contras. Two congressional committees are investigating those reports. Were there Contras who relied on the profits of narcotics in order to buy arms and to survive? Yes, I'm convinced of that. that Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts heads a foreign relations subcommittee. Once you open up a clandestine network which has the ability to deliver weapons or other goods from this country, leaving airfields secretly, under the sanction of a, quote, covert operation, uh, with public officials, DEA, customs, law enforcement, whatever, pulled back because of the covert sanctioning. You've opened the pipeline for nefarious types who are often involved in these kinds of activities to become uh, the people who bring things back in. Oliver North had been told the airlift was using questionable characters. Robert Owen, his contact man with the Contras, wrote from the field that some of the leaders were running drugs. In February of 86, 
Owen advised North that a resupply plane had been used for shipping drugs. In Owen's words, part of the crew had criminal records. The second sentence says, nice group the boys choose. Who are the boys? CIA. So what happens is the President of the United States says this is the national security, you must uh, step back and let these people do their job, and therefore a lot of smugglers, drug traffickers, others go through the back door. I don't think the President of the United States said specifically look the other way to these things. I don't think the President of the United States knew these things were going on. But the President of the United States did encourage to such a degree the continuation of aid to the Contras and it was so clear through Casey and Poindexter, et cetera, that this was going to please the president if it happened. It's clear that there were those who turned their heads and looked the other way because they knew that this major goal was out there and it was part of it. And if there happened to be these minor aberrations, as people referred to them, uh, that was a price you were paying in the effort to accomplish the larger goal, which larger goal, obviously, was against the law and against the wishes of the Congress and against the American people. How does it happen that to be anti-communist we become undemocratic, as if we have to subvert our society a bit? This is partly the answer. The powers claimed by presidents and national security have become the controlling wheel of government, driving everything else. Secrecy then makes it possible for the president to pose as the sole competent judge of what will best protect our security. Secrecy permits the White House to control what others know, and that's power. How many times have we heard a president say, if you only knew what I know, you would understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. But it's a self-defeating situation. Someone said, everything secret degenerates, even the administration of justice. So in the bunker of the White House, the men who served the president put loyalty above analysis, and judgment yields to obedience. Just salute and follow orders. This lieutenant colonel is not going to challenge a decision of the commander-in-chief for whom I still work. And I am proud to work for that commander-in-chief. And if the commander-in-chief tells this lieutenant colonel to go stand in the corner and sit on his head, I will do so. That notion troubled Senator Inouye, a combat hero of World War II. He reminded Colonel North of the military code of a soldier's duty. The uniform code makes it abundantly clear that it must be the lawful orders of a superior officer. In fact, it says members of the military have an obligation to disobey unlawful orders. This principle was considered so important that we, we, the government of the United States, proposed that it be internationally applied in the Nuremberg trials. And so in the Nuremberg trials, we said that the fact that the defendant... Chairman, may I please uh, I find this offensive. I find you're engaging in a personal attack on Colonel North, and you're far removed from the issues in this case. Colonel North's lawyer deflected Senator Inouye, but some of North's fellow officers watching on television took issue with the colonel. I'm two years senior to Oliver North out of the Naval Academy, and the only thing he's got on me is a silver star and six more years in the court. And when Oliver North started to say the things he started to say, I literally wanted to throw things at my TV set. 
I seriously considering mailing my Naval Academy ring back to the Naval Academy and denying ever having gone there. I was so embarrassed and humiliated that a professional military officer would stoop to the dishonor and disgrace and warmongering that Oliver North and Poindexter and McFarlane and the rest of the crew did selling arms to the Iranians after they blew up the Beirut barracks, after they blew up the Beirut embassy, is the most immoral thing. That's like selling Zyklon B to the Germans after you found out the Holocaust is underway. One of my drill instructors in the Marine Corps, by the way, we're talking about, at that time, there were a lot of protests in Washington, D.C., and somebody said, well, those commie lovers or whatever. And the drill instructor told us something as we were about to graduate. He said, what you're fighting for might be wrong or right. Nobody really knows. And he said there's a constitution that allows those people to be out on the streets protesting. He said that's what's worth fighting for. That's what the constitution is. He said that's what you took an oath to. And when you put those bars on as a second lieutenant, you better remember that. I don't think Oliver North had that drill instructor. It was career military men who managed the Iran-Contra debacle under Reagan and Casey. North, Poindexter, McFarland, Secord, Singlaub were all trained to fight wars, not run foreign policy. In war, the aim is absolute and simple. Destroy the enemy, no matter what. They had little understanding of politics in Iran, Nicaragua, and most important, in Washington. Foreign policy has increasingly become a military policy. Ronald Reagan has doubled the number of military men on the staff of the National Security Council. What was created in 1947 as a civilian advisory group to the president has become a command post for covert operations run by the military. Far removed from public view and congressional oversight, they are accountable only to the one man they serve. The framers of the Constitution feared a permanent state of war, with the commander-in-chief served by an elite private corps who put the claims of the sovereign above the Constitution. This is the first page of an order uh, signed and approved by President Reagan. This is the ultimate weapon of the secret government, the National Security Decision Directive, the NSDD. Every president since Harry Truman has issued them. They're not published in any government register. Ronald Reagan has signed at least 280 such directives. They cover everything from outer space to nuclear weapons to covert operations in Iran and Nicaragua. In essence, by an arbitrary and secret decree, the president can issue himself a license to do as he will, where he will. And the only ones who need to know are the secret agents who carry it out, the knights of the Oval Office. You have testified that as a member of the National Security Council staff, you conducted a covert operation. And my question is, uh, did the president specifically designate the National Security Council staff for that purpose? I think what I have said consistently is that I believe that the president has the authority to do what he wants with his own staff, that I was a member of his staff, that Mr. McFarlane was, and that Admiral Poindexter was, and that in pursuing the president's foreign policy goals of support for the Nicaraguan resistance, he was fully within his rights to send us off to talk to foreign heads of state, to seek the assistance of those foreign heads of state, to use other than U.S. government monies, and to do so without a finding. Without a finding, 
There's a law which requires presidents to make a finding that the national interest will be served by a covert action and to report it to Congress in a timely fashion. The idea is to make sure that both the Congress and the executive, each elected independently by the people, are accountable for what is done in our name. But President Reagan gave himself permission to ignore the requirements of the law. And when he sold arms to our avowed enemy in Iran, he signed the finding after the fact and then ordered that it not be reported to Congress. The president becomes his own arbiter of the law in matters of national security. Or in Richard Nixon's words, when the president does it, that means it is not illegal. I think it is very important for the American people to understand that this is a dangerous world, that we live at risk, and that this nation is at risk in a dangerous world. The issue here is not whether we should pursue a foreign policy that guards against the Soviet Union. That's not the issue, because obviously, in significant ways, the Soviet Union represents a threat to our interests around the world and to our values. The problem is, is the, the excessive American perception of that threat, the pathological ways we construe that threat, and what it leads us to do. Because in addition to distorting our domestic priorities, to undermining our democratic civil liberties at home, in the end, arguably, it actually does damage to our national security. There is a doctrine called the reason of state, that whatever is necessary to defend the state's survival must be done by the individuals responsible for it. Doesn't that take precedence over this 18th century set of values? I think the survival of the state is what the Constitution is about. The reason of state argument is a very slippery thing, and at heart, at best, amoral. The idea amoral? Oh, you bet. Uh, I would say it ranges from amoral on the good side to just, just basically immoral. Assume I'm president, and I'm going to say, Professor Furmage, that's all wonderful, but I deal in an ugly world. The United States is a wonderful place, relatively, because of this document, because of the values the founders uh, inculcated in us. But the world beyond these borders is a pretty ugly world. People don't like us. People don't share those values. People are out to get us. And if I don't do the ugly things that are necessary to protect us from an ugly world, you won't be able to exercise the right of free speech out of that university. I would say poppycock, Mr. President. That is, that is simply nonsense. The whole fight is over means, not ends. Every president, with every good intention, and every tyrant, with whatever his intention, has used precisely the same argument. That is, don't constrain me by means, and I will get you there safely and well. And I think any time we accept a reason of state argument to justify means that are totally incongruent with the values of our state, we're on the high road to tyranny, and we deserve to be there. Our nation was born in rebellion against tyranny. We are the fortunate heirs of those who fought for America's freedom and then drew up a remarkable charter to protect it against arbitrary power. The Constitution begins with the words, We the people. A secret government and Roger Wilkins. Don't he and his family have long battled for a more just America. If we continue these policies to rob ourselves in order to feed this national security monster, we are going to continue to degrade American life. That's real national security. National security for the United States is making the United States a good place to live where people want to be active, intelligent, involved citizens. For people at the top to say this world is so complicated and so dangerous, just a few of us need to govern it and hold the secrets in, and we will tell you what's good for you, 
That is moving down the road to dictatorship. Okay. It represents roughly two weeks of... The national security argument now interferes with every American's right to understand its government. That's what secrecy is all about these days. Scott Armstrong is director of the National Security Archive, a public interest group devoted to a more open government. He has poured over the Iran-Contra evidence and believes Congress has failed to deal with the fundamental constitutional issues. The inability of Congress to interpret the Article I powers that they have over foreign policy in relationship to the President's powers under Article II and to say, wait a minute, this isn't the way the Constitution was set up. This isn't what the Founding Fathers intended. The Founding Fathers never intended for George Washington to be able to go to George III and say, I don't like what Congress has done here. Give me some money. I'll hire some mercenaries, and we'll call it American foreign policy. That would have been treason. Gail Jensen, Mary Lee Fithian, and Nancy Jones live in Minneapolis. Last summer, they organized citizens around the state to monitor the Iran-Contra hearings as a way of increasing public awareness. The church I go to, we, we have a hymn that words go something like, uh, I wish that my eyes had never been opened. Because if they'd been opened, I'd have to do something about it. And I think that that's a problem with a lot of people in this country, is that they, want, they don't want their eyes to be opened because they're very comfortable, very secure. And if their eyes are open, they're going to have to do something. The people that we're talking to have quite, uh, they recognize that we're only talking about subverting the Constitution, that's all. The American people are part of the checks and balances. It's not just the executive branch and the Congress and the judicial branch. The people have a role, too. I grew up just feeling as though the system out here is pretty hunky-dory. All you have to do is admire it and respect it and let it keep operating. We'll always have freedom. We'll always have democracy. We'll always have free elections. I've got a question, you know, that that's going to continue. Unless I decide to go for it and keep on affecting change. Pete Edstrom is a dairy farmer in Wisconsin, a believer in the American way. With his pastor and other farmers, he started a newspaper to rally their neighbors to community action. If there's anything I want my children to understand, it's, it's the, the concept of the old town meeting type of politics where people do it. People are involved. People are informed. Uh, I think that probably the problems this country are in right now, the hearings are a classical example, are clearly a case of, of an American people not having been involved. John Chilson is a Republican state senator in Wisconsin, a popular conservative who says the hearings this summer forced him to reconsider his support for U.S. policy in Central America. And you've been a Republican for 20 years, and you, uh, you like to say that the Republicans are the best guys, the guys in the white hats, and uh, the uh, recognition that, uh, that indeed in this very important situation, that wasn't the case, that uh, the policy was dead wrong. Uh, I felt an obligation to uh, to speak out. Senator Chilson's change of heart was personal and political. At the urging of Liz, their daughter, he and his wife went to Central America to see for themselves. When they returned, he was still critical of the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, but convinced that an American-backed war on peasants was not the way to stop communism. But there's a great danger that in this country we would 
accept automatically uh, things that are said to us in a in a doctrinaire fashion. You know that uh, we've got to be fighting communism, and so that can uh, be the whitewash that uh, can cover up a multitude of sins. I think that's uh, a strong evidence of that is what was going on, and uh, uh, we can't uh, be fighting uh, uh, for democracy in uh, Central America and uh, seeing it lost back here at home, you know, and being it, seeing it uh, shredded back here at home. doesn't have to be. The people who wrote this Constitution lived in a world more dangerous than ours. They were surrounded by territory controlled by hostile powers on the edge of a vast wilderness. Yet they understood that even in perilous times, the strength of self-government was public debate and public consensus. To put aside these basic values out of fear, to imitate the foe in order to defeat him, is to shred the distinction that makes us different. In the end, not only our values, but our methods separate us from the enemies of freedom in the world. The decisions we make are inherent in the methods that produce them. An open society cannot survive a secret government. Constitutional democracy, you see, is no romantic notion. It's our defense against ourselves, the one foe who might defeat us. I'm Bill Moyers. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.